Today we go down the rabbit hole with Richard Joseph. Richard is a polymath focused currently on mental health. As you'll hear, we get very deep very quickly on a number of seemingly disparate topics, including his work in the ad industry when he worked at Google, the issues with the public sector, how he views determinism versus free will, how the mental health industry is broken, issues with the DSM-5, his distaste for the royal family, and so much more. Though this sounds like a rambling set of topics, it is anything but. These are very interconnected topics. We'll likely have to have Richard back at some point because we simply just ran out of time. With that, please buckle up for this roller coaster with Richard Joseph. Welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today, I have Richard Joseph. How are you, sir? I'm doing very good, thank you. Yes, thank thanks you for, for coming. Me. We uh, <laughs> we were definitely wrestling with the mics and audio and all kinds of stuff coming onto the show today. So, thank you for bearing with me. Uh, that was more of an ordeal than it is. We normally have to do. We we installed some new stuff, and uh, just every time we touch anything, it's just like a house of cards. It all just falls over, and we got to redo stuff. So, uh, thank you for being patient with us. Well, they're the laws, you know. <laughs> what can happen will happen. <laughs> what a mess! So you uh, flew in from London, is that right? From London today, yeah. Yeah. And especially to come and hang out with you. How do you feel? I feel great. I feel good. So. Yeah, uh, I've got some whiskey in my system now, so give it give it an hour. You're just like, <laughs> <laughs> I got some sleep on the flight. Oh, did you? That was good. Yeah. Oh, good. And then uh, I came, and rather than get some food, I got some whiskey, and that will keep me going that, so. yeah, for at least for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we originally met through one of my other guests, actually, uh, Kurt Simon Harlinghausen. Um, how did you meet him out of curiosity? So I met Simon when I was working at Publicis. Um, Publicis actually bought his company. Um, and then sort of one of these weird hierarchy type sort of things, like we ended up sort of working like alongside each other for a little while, even though they just spent um, an inordinate amount of money, I would imagine. I'm sure he'd say they got value for money mm-hmm. <laughs> on buying his company. So yeah, we, we worked together there. I, w- I had kind of joined Publicis from Google Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about that. I mean, uh, so how'd you find your way to Google? Like that is not uh, not super common for people to work there. So, no, so sort of around the houses, to be honest. Um, I kind of did this sort of advertising thing. Sort of started off when I was pretty young, um, doing kind of working in agencies, like and um, doing that sort of classic media buying, media planning, that sort of stuff. And then somehow find found my way in into Google. Um, how, how did that happen? It was, um, it was just, I just kind of decided that I wanted to work there, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, that there's no real, like... Most uh, people don't get to do that. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm like a white, heterosexual, like middle-class man, you know, yeah. so it's kind of, it's, things are... So you were the diversity hire, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that kind of like this, this thing of you, when you're in a certain age, I lived in central London, you know, and it's just like I had, um, you know, a certain level of education, experience and stuff. And at that point, I do think it becomes about kind of, can you will yourself into it? You know, how much do you want it? Like how much are you prepared to do it? So I just decided that I wanted to work there and sort of found a way of making that happen. Um so you just waited out on the doorstep for the hiring manager kind of thing. Pretty like, much something like that, you know. Uh, and I went through my my thirteen or so interviews, and um, they seemed to go sort of quite well. But it's just um, 
I think that when it gets to that point, it's just a, a case of can you figure it out, you know? So, like, there's there's a, a problem there to be solved and that problem is ultimately, like, can you say the right things, you know? Like, um, or can you understand what they're looking for? Um, I always say that Texas needs people to be a thing and if they are not willing to be that thing, Texas will chew them up and spit them out. I have a feeling that interview process is quite similar. It just needs you to be a thing. And if you're able to be that thing, then you're in. If you're not able to be that thing, like I have some buddies who went through the process and they asked them questions and they're like, that's a stupid fucking question. Like that's not how to think about the problem at all. Spit them out. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it depends on, uh, we could really tumble, tumble down this rabbit hole for quite a long time. You know I mean? We could sort of bring up Noam Chomsky and manufacturing consent here and sort of like really sort of start talking about, you know, what is that system? You know, what are they selecting for? Um, and then you could just look at it from, you know, a Myers-Briggs sort of perspective and you could just go, can you work out a Myers-Briggs? Yes, you can. You know, it's just a, it's just 40 questions. It's just a, um, and once you understand the framework that they're being asked in, which doesn't take that long to learn, you can pretty much answer it however you want it to be answered. So you can come out on any one of those quadrants that you want. So that's all it is. It's really looking at like, what do they want you to say at that point? You know, what are they hiring for? And if you do enough research, you know, you, you understand that, then there's enough, I mean, there's entire websites now about like how to get a job at Google sort of thing. So it just, it really depends on. Did you use them out of curiosity? Yeah, like I, I definitely use them. Yeah. In, uh-huh. the, in the same way that kind of, you think of like chat GPT and things now, it, it's kind of how good are your prompts, mm-hmm. right? And some people really understand big data and they understand the complexities of big data and actually like what they're searching so they can get really, really specific on their prompts. And some people don't understand it. So they still think of it in really generic terms. So they're just not getting us specific information just because they're not typing in the right prompt. So um, it's the same thing, right? It's like I, I kind of, from a, a people sort of perspective, you either understand you know, how to tell somebody what, what they want to hear um, or, or you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to in the corporate world, right? Yeah, but uh, it seems like they're really trying to hire for a certain kind of person. So do you have a sense of what that kind of person is? Yeah, so they, they literally have um, a set sort of uh, way of doing it. So there's these four interviews in a day that you have. So there's four, I think they're either 30 minutes or 45 minutes going back a little bit sort of, and, and they're back to back. And each of those people are measuring you on just one specific thing. And those four people are supposed to be people that don't know each other in the company and also aren't going to be the people that hire you. So the idea is that you go oh, through really? this sort of vetting process. So they have nothing to do with your actual position. They're mm-hmm. just kind of random places in the company. Absolutely. Yeah. They're just random people. And there's, there's a whole interview process that sort of you go through in terms of to be a Google interviewer. Um, now I'm going to try and remember what the four areas are, but I'm going to get this wrong, but you can just look it up. Online yeah, sure, and it sure, will. sure. But I think it's something like, um, it's one of them is definitely called googliness um and that's kind of like your your personality fit you know like do you do you fit with the google vibe um then how would you define the google vibe so they have again they have set characteristics as as uh, far as i'm aware that sort of you get scored up or down on um i think it's things like um arrogance they don't like not being a team player they don't like um and there's certain things like humble, being a team player, etc., that you get scored like very highly on. Um, 
like I'm, I'm sort of slightly, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and sort of going into the back of my memory to sort of pull this out. So, but you can easily find this, but I, I think it's something like each one of those four people give you a mark out of 25 and you need an overall score out of that hundred in order to get through to the, the next round. And that's then the hiring man, the person whose team you'll be in. So it's kind of a bit of these people have all been vetted. They've got through this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's up to you to kind of make a decision. And I think by the time such limited amounts of people get through that, that by the time it actually gets to the person that's hiring, they sort of just go, well, yes, you know, and their questions are more around the, do I want to go for a beer with this type of person? Because they've already done all of the competency stuff. So I think the four areas are googliness, lateral and logical thinking. And then I think the fourth one is maybe experience within the role, like sort of competency. Um, but the the logical and lateral ones are very basic. You know, it's kind of, they used to do these whole ones in the past, you know, of this, um, how many golf balls can you fit on an aeroplane? That sort of stuff. And what they were really looking at there is like how you're working that out. So um, you know, you mean literally on top of the airplane as it's flying, or uh... but that's, that's the same thing, right? And then it's like, like how much are you prepared to question that? You know, how much are you actually prepared to get to the answer of it? And you'll get to a point of you're saying, well, what type of airplane is it? What size is the airplane? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm assuming that the standard size golf balls, because I can't think of any other different size golf balls. But yeah. then, but all of these things are it could about be novelty, exactly. And then these things are. <laughs> how well are you questioning it? And I guess they, depending on whether it's lateral or logical, you know, that you're being marked on at that point um, or you're being judged on more actually sort of put um, at that point, they would sort of take all of this into account. And then sometimes they would just stop and sort of say, okay, well, I'm not going to tell you that, but you decide for yourself, but they decided not to do that. So now the questions are much more kind of rational. It's kind of, um, um, I'm trying to think of the ones that I had. It was, um, it was, they wrote a list of clients on a, on a whiteboard um, and then it was like, this is how much this client is worth to the company. Um, but this is how much they're spending overall, you know, like in terms of marketing budgets or advertising budgets. Um, and how would you split your time across these 10 clients, you know, based on that? So it's very basic in terms of that you're looking at it of uh, what percentage is Google getting of their overall uh, advertising mm-hmm. where is the, where is the opportunity cost and how would you divide your week up across these sort of 10 clients so it's i mean it's it's the the most basic form of it but i guess in that sense they're obviously scoring you on that sort of one side of it so mm. and so what would you say the kind of the average googler was like to work with so the the way it was told to me um and sort of my experience of working there is that every position is overhired for um, and I certainly wouldn't be the, you know, the expert on, you know, on this matter, you know, there's people that have worked in Google for, for way longer than sort of I did that would be the expert. I can just kind of give you my sort of take on it, which was that they overhire for every position. And the reason they overhire for every position is you probably heard that thing of like, um, you know, the Enron thing, like the smartest guy in the room type vibe. And kind of when you're speaking to someone from Google, people would always have this impression that that person's really smart. And, but what it normally means is that that person is just did that job five years ago you know they just shouldn't be in that room um Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the the model that i saw that existed there just everyone was doing a job they were getting incredibly well paid for that job but they were doing a job that they were doing five years before interesting Um, and in another company they would be doing a job that was you know they were learning and they were sort of like 
pushing their their knowledge um, and you know operating more on the edge of what they knew. Whereas in Google, you're not operating on the edge of of what you know. Certainly in the these sort of areas that I were in, th- these people are um, mm. like sort of overpaid for doing a job that is probably two tiers under them. I see. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and so what job did you do when you were there? Um, so I was on the, the account side. So like the biggest spending advertisers sort of, and it was my job to kind of uh, advise them on everything digital sort of at that point. Um, but what was funny about it was um, even though Google has all of these... Uh, you know, flexible hours and unlimited holidays and all this sort of side of it, you get asked the craziest questions, you know, just because you work there, you'll be in meetings with, you know, the, the managing director of Toyota or, you know, the, the, the UK uh, CMO of, of Toyota, you know, the chief marketing officer, and they'll ask you how the Android store works because they couldn't download an app properly. <laughs> <laughs> did you have the answer for that <laughs> I mean, you're, but you're expected to have the answer to right. that you know so yeah. it's uh really the answer to that is are you real is yeah. this is this a real question like yeah. you know like i'm getting paid a lot of money to answer this, <laughs> that's you know? two tiers down <laughs> yeah i mean that's quite a lot more tears down you know? <laughs> so um, it's a strange one but it's a it was a funny experience to be honest like being there because um i guess i always felt like I mean, I, I I kind of wanted, I'd worked in that sort of industry for for a while in terms of um, advertising. It's one of these things that Google, that a lot of people forget, you know, when you say to people like, what does Google do? You're an ad engine. And it's just, but I don't think the average person would know that, you know? Yeah. So I think if you stop people on the street and said like, what's Google do? It's like they're the biggest and most profitable advertising company in the whole world. Like, that, that's what they are, yeah. I think. I think the statistic, and again, don't directly quote me on this, but I think it's something like 96% of their revenue comes through advertising. They were making over $100 billion a year on people clicking on ads. And that's it. It's just it's pure clicks, right? That, that's what they're getting. And, um, you know, now, I mean, they, they would say, obviously, there's YouTube there as well. And, you know, the people are sort of seeing ads, but like predominantly their, their revenue. I mean, I guess kind of like, yeah, the advertising and clicks, that's where all the revenue is from, right? And... Um, um, it's just a lot of people don't know that and I always struggled with this idea of you know you get Gmail for free and you get Google Calendar for free and you get YouTube for free and you get to use the search engine you know Google index the world's information that was my Google hat on that Mm -hmm. (laughs) Google index the world's information (laughs) you know Um, and you get to use that for for free um and you get google maps which google maps is amazing like it's like a, 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 like i can't imagine the world before google maps so from one perspective you're like wow i get all of this stuff for free and you're like that's kind of cool but then you're like what am i paying for this because you're paying for it somehow because no one's giving you something for free and we call it in the sort of advertising world the freemium you know economy so it's like if you're not paying for the product then you are the product mm-hmm. um and one of the difficulties with it is that what we can't yet quantify in which, you know, some people, you know, in the, we can go down the sort of psychology and mental health sort of industry, but people are trying to now quantify the impact of this. But there is a price that you're paying for that. Um, you're just not aware of it at the time. And they can't state it in their terms and conditions because it's not, it doesn't necessarily come up on any you know, rational and binary framework that we have at the moment to be able to quantify the value exchange of that. Um, but ultimately what they're doing is 
they're learning about you, right? So, you know, ask yourself the question, like, when was the last time you clicked onto the second page, you know, when you search for something on Google? Well, nowadays, they don't even have a second page. They're getting, they're getting that, that infinite scroll thing. There is no second page anymore. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's just that there's still, you know, if you go on, like, you know, Google sort of on the, the desktop or whatever and you, you go to it. No, one, just, no one does. No that. one's ever done that. No, no one's clicking on the second page now. And then you're like, who's even clicking on the third or fourth link? Yeah. You know, it's like people are clicking on the first one. Which that, is which is a Google link. Which is the a very first one because Google's getting paid for that, right? You know, so. Yep. But then you think, like, how amazing is that, that? That whatever phrase you type in that search engine, that very first thing that they punch up there, that's the thing that you're looking for and you click it straight away and that's the thing that you need. It's because they've got so much information from you and on, on you at that point because their entire company relies on it, right? That's where all their profit comes from. Mm-hmm. You clicking on that link. So they give you all that stuff for free so they can learn all of that about you. And because they learn all of that about you, they know exactly what to put on that first thing and then you click it and then they make money from it. Now, some people might turn around and say, well, that's great because I was looking for that thing in the first place. And they say, and I'm prepared to do that as a value exchange. Um, But then we sort of try to correlate that with suicide rates are completely spiking right now. And I know this might be like quite a sort of a quite turn for the very beginning of the show. We will definitely get to that too. But, you know, I I, I was not expecting to shit on Google um, with you, uh, although I'm happy to do it uh, (laughs) as as much as you want. Um, But I will say, I don't think I've heard a Googler come out of Google and say what you're saying. Um, Normally what I hear is it was a great place to work. You know, the people are great or something like that. Some generic, I mean, they probably read it on a script on the way out the door. This is what HR tells you to say or something. Um, but from my perspective, I've always wondered, I mean, there's got to be some th- kind of nagging thing in the back of your head that goes, oof, what did I just enable while I was there? What did I, what did I create? And it sounds like you actually had that sensation. Like, what the fuck am I doing here? Like, we're just, I see... Once upon a time, we had the smartest people in the world and they worked in politics. That's what they did. You smart people go into politics like Socrates or whatever, you know, these politicians and senates or whatever. That's where they went. And then eventually they went into money. You know, they went into commerce, um, specifically the stock markets, banking, you know, central banking, that kind of stuff. That's where all the smart people went. And then they went into ads. And now we have the smartest people in the world working on getting people to click on very tiny little banner ads on websites. And so I'm curious, like, what, what do you think the average person inside Google is thinking? Are, are they just like totally cool with what's going on there? Or are they more like you, the more introspective? Like, so I think there's a link between all those things that you said, right? And it's power. So the industry might have changed somewhat, you know, I mean, you, if you go back to you know, the, the philosophers sort of of our, you know, of those times, it was the most powerful, they were the most revered people, you know, they were kind of looking at the real ideals of, you know, how do you govern a society? And, um, and then when you said- Or build one from scratch. Yeah, completely from scratch, you know, and they're having those, uh, you know, the real deep dive philosophical sort of debates, you know, that still we're talking about now, you know, free will versus determinism and all of this sort of, you know, you can go down this rabbit hole for ages. Um, But that was kind of where the power was, you know? and then that sort of shifted, as you as you said. And then obviously, once we form these uh, ideologies, it was about you know who's running that, you know. And this was um, 
you know, whoever that might be, you know, uh, in terms of whatever your ideology might be that was running that. And then, as you said, after that, there was this shift probably only in the sort of maybe 80s or so where there was this sort of shift into the financial institutions, you know, being given deregulation, massive amounts more power um, you know, in terms of where it is today. But uh, and now when you say in, in, in big tech and stuff as well, but really it's just about it's still just chasing the power. Right. It's just like the 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 industry they're in might have changed, but it's still the same thing, right? It's still, this is the, the whole um, ethos. I mean, Adam Smith wrote about this, you know, a, you know, a long time ago in terms of like the, the vile maxim of uh, the, the masters of mankind, right? It's just to, to, uh, to, to constantly try and gain at the expense of, of other people. Um, and then we're still here today, you know? Um, and I definitely experienced a, a case of like, moral schizophrenia let's call it that sort of when i was there that sort of i was on you know climate change protests of you know of a weekend and stuff i i remember leaving the office early you know to go and join a protest sort of in the afternoon and sort of putting an out of office on you know because i was at a protest and then i was thinking wow but my day job is feeding this beast of you know is feeding this beast of it and you're sort of trying to rationalize those two things of well, hold on, I exist in this society, like, I live in central London, you know, um, like, this is my life, you know, I have sort of a cost of, of my life, um, and I'm earning quite well, sort of, from this, but then, if I sort of just give that job up, like, what else am I going to do, <laughs> you know, that like, what am I going to do, go and work at a non-profit, like, and, um, so, it, it, you're constantly sort of trying to balance this, this sort of, this playoff of it, and, and then I think a lot of people in this sort of, google world and in that sort of social media world they're, they're very much looking at the good you know and because there's just not enough research on the bad you know <laughs> that's because you're not looking <laughs> and, and that's, the, that's the thing you know like uh, it, it, not a lot of research in not making money <laughs> yeah and it's it's difficult you know that when people's uh, morals are sort of questioned like that but you know they're they're earning very well from upton sinclair uh, had a, a famous quote about this. It's hard to get a man to believe or understand something when there's check depends on them not understanding it. I'm butchering it a little bit. That's that's the gist. Yeah, I mean, absolutely that. And it's just, and then, you know, you've got these Peter Singer type, you know, modern philosophers and stuff that are sort of saying, well, actually, if you've got the opportunity to earn that amount of money, then you should just go and earn that amount of money because you're contributing massive amounts of money into the sort of tax system. Um and yeah, I mean, that's the sort of one way of, of looking at it, but you sort of have to question, um, like it, for me, it just, it came down, it got to a point where like I, I physically couldn't go in, you know, I was just kind of, um, I was seeing these things of, you know, mental health and kind of what was happening with consumerism and all of these, you know, philosophical approaches that I had to, to life in terms of like less consumerism, you know, and actually like is capitalism the right system for us and then when i really sort of started to, to deep dive into you know economics and philosophy and and that it just became a thing that was just like completely um in opposition to everything that sort of i felt in life i started to then look at like what well, really what's the cost here that people are paying for this and are people even aware of it no not at all they're definitely not aware come on you I know people most people, the average person, you were, you had a uh, you had an Uber driver on the way over. Do you think that Uber driver has any clue at all about Google's business model? So, like, no, like he absolutely doesn't at all. But then, you know, there is, there are 
Google Maps is amazing. Right? It is amazing. I use it all the time. Right? And if someone said to me, you need to pay for Google Maps, it's going to cost you £10 a month. Um, but what we won't do is we won't harvest your data and then sell it to the highest bidder. And that will mean that you're not going to get all of these ads that are, that are going to come on you. Like, would you do that? I would do that because I can afford to pay that £10 a month. Now, some people can't afford to pay that £10 a month, so they're just not going to do it. But what they don't know is that those ads that are being blasted at them, that might give them a gambling addiction in the future, mm. or that might give them a sex addiction because they're porn ads that are being blasted at them. Um, but there's just not enough research at the moment with those correlations, because if they existed... Um, I think that companies like Google wouldn't exist because um, it's always baffled me how people now, you know, you'll hear people about the strangest things, you know, like you'll, um, you know, you'll, you'll ask somebody for, um, maybe I'm, I'm just giving a random example here, but like, I know that in the younger generation now, um, I have nephews and nieces that are sort of younger. So the sort of Gen Z sort of generation, they, they're really precious about giving out their phone number. So they give out their Instagram handle like rather than their phone number. And to them, that's a thing of like, no, no, I'm going to sort of protect my phone number. And you're like, you're protecting your phone number? That's what you're protecting. But you've got Instagram on your phone and you've got Facebook on your phone and Apple and Google and Netflix. And you, you know how much more information they have on you than just yeah. your phone number? Yeah, and they already have your They've phone number. They've already got your phone number. <laughs> they, know. They, know, they probably know you to a, a greater degree than you know yourself. Not, not probably. As a matter of fact, I know that for certain. That mm. These companies know those people better than they know themselves. And in order to explain that to somebody, you know, to really try and explain it, I think it's, I think a lot of people would rather live in the delusion because it's, it's too big a thing for them to get their head around. It's like looking at the sun and trying to get your brain to understand that that's a giant planet of fire and that fire gives us all of the energy that sustains human existence. There's no possible way that like anybody in the world can rationalize that when they see a sunset. Nobody thinks about the, the giant ball of fire, planet of fire in the sky. No one does that. You know, they go, well, that's a beautiful sunset, right? That some things are just too complex for us to get our, our tiny little brains around. And I think this is one of them. You know, people are just unprepared to, um, to, to, accept that because of how it changed their life well i'm definitely going to go look at sunsets differently <laughs> <laughs> so i mean that's all very interesting um i think the average googler from what i can tell is at to some degree i don't know to what level exactly it, perfectly willing to put their head in the sand perfectly willing to go ah i'm not i'm just not going to think about this and and um, I have some anecdotal evidence of this happening. Like I, I've sat down with some very senior product managers, you know, in charge of very big chunks of the company and their, and their product design. And, and I explain problems like things that could easily be fixed that have absolutely no benefit at all from a security perspective and are definitely stealing people's privacy. Whether they are aware of that or not, I don't know. And those things, and this is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, those things still exist to this day. And the product manager uh, was like, are you saying we should get rid of these things? Like, he's confused. Like, why would I remove something that's removing people's privacy? And I'm like, because there's no benefit to their security. And this is supposed to be a security thing that you're building. And uh, no, no, no positive reaction whatsoever. And so 
I think to some extent, you're just not going to get a certain group of people to understand that removing their own paycheck is uh, a wise decision. And, um, and, and maybe it isn't actually, maybe there's some upside, but, uh, but I don't even think they're really to have the dialogue. I don't, I don't think that's a conversation they want to have period. I mean, I think that a lot of people, you know, to go back to Chomsky and manufacturing consent, you know, like how many people at work at Google have read that book? You know, like how many people have read that book, you know, and a lot of people did read that book. Right. But it's like today, you know, outside of, you know, philosophers and kind of like really deep academics and stuff, a lot of people are not understanding that. And he's literally saying that, like, I mean, I'm going to butcher this, uh, you know, the, the sort of understanding of, of this book or the, but the, the way that I would explain it, because it was a really sort of um, a book that really changed my life. And, you know, I read it when I was, I was young and, you know, he was, uh, there's a very famous um, interview that Chomsky like, gave with a journalist when he was talking about the book. And I always think that this is actually a better way of explaining the book actually through this. And this journalist basically misunderstood the book. And the book is actually like, a, in my opinion, it's um, uh, like it's a rallying call for independent journalism. He's saying how important independent journalism actually is. And this journalist clearly didn't really understand you know, what he was saying. And this journalist is saying so he asked Chomsky the question and says so you're telling me that every question that I'm asking right now I'm not freely thinking of these questions but like that we've all decided as a team of people and he says no no that's not what I'm saying at all I'm saying the only reason you're sat there asking those questions is because people have judged your range of thought and that the only questions that you can think of are within that range of thought and that's why you were picked out of all of the people that applied for that job ouch (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's just like yes, you know, like, <laughs> bang, you know, like. So is that why we have Googlers um, who are within that certain range? They get exactly a certain type of score or better, and now you're in. And that's exactly what it is at every company, right? You know, that, yeah, that's, sure. that's what they're doing, right? That is what the interview process is. Yeah, I don't right? want to single Google out too much, but I think since we're talking about Google, it's useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just that they're known as kind of like, but Enron was like this, right? You know, in terms of the smartest people in the room and their sort of hiring process and this whole thing is in every company, right? They're looking for a certain type of people, you know, like when you think of investment bankers, what you're, you think they're hiring moral people for that? You think that like <laughs> selecting people within the moral imperatives? So absolutely not, right? They want people to go in there and be like, how much am I going to earn? Like how many hours are there in a week and what time are your offices open until, you know, I'll sleep in the office and they're like, yes, you're hired, you know? So it's just, if, if there was some sort of like universal moral framework that you turned around and said, actually everyone should just be judged on this, you know, moral framework, you've got at least got to have a foundation you know, like whether people talk about now, um, you know, some, some really amazing, you know, ideas like universal basic income and all that sort of stuff. And these are amazing policies to bring in. But like what you've got to have, uh, there's still going to be people implementing those policies. Right. And what you should really or I mean, my opinion, what we should really be looking at is like, you know, what's the personal development of those people? You know, what's their moral framework? Like, I want to understand how those people are morally developing you know like what, what have they done to develop themselves personally and then i'll put them in charge of you know implementing one of these systems because the system in itself might be really moral but if the person implementing that system isn't really moral um, or isn't at least some sort of like foundation or or at least even understands what a moral framework is right <laughs> you know i 
I don't know that I agree with that. And, and not because I think your premise is wrong, but I think you can design systems where the incentives are just perfectly in alignment with sociopaths. You can make it so that they are successful without being a detriment to the rest of the team. Like everyone, all boats can rise. You don't have to design out uh, unethical people as long as you get the incentives correct. And so that's, I think, that's a failing of capitalism. And, and, and I think there's some really bad parts of capitalism and some amazing parts. But I think one decent critique is that people haven't spent enough time thinking about incentives. If you really, really focus on incentives, I think you can make moral systems by virtue of the fact that the they just don't have a better choice. Like, I'm going to make less. Like, if I don't do the moral thing, I make less. Like, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to do the moral thing because it's just more economically in my favor, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I it's guess a game theory kind of thing. Game theory, or you know, in in philosophy, you know, is the big sort of uh, debate between you know Satur and Camus in terms of um, you know would you kill? I'm again slightly paraphrasing the question. I know that like all of the philosophers out there are going to shoot me down <laughs> on kind of, like, the, the individual nuance of the words. Within so many this. philosophers watching this podcast. Yeah, but it's <laughs> something along the line. That the, the big question is, you know, Satur poses this: Would you kill one innocent child to make the world a better place? Um, and that's not exactly how he, he says the question um, but um, Camus' rough response to that and again slightly paraphrasing um, is um, can you guarantee that you can make the world a better place by killing that one innocent child mm -hmm. if you can't guarantee that you make the world a better place by killing that one innocent child you've just done something really immoral right. you know, you've just killed an innocent child so right. whether your intention was to do something really moral make the world a better place you just made a really immoral decision to do that. So then you'd have to question. So what if, what if it was a 51% chance and you could kill as many kids as you want? And then so statistically, you're almost, guar almost guaranteed to get uh, a positive outcome. Just got to kill just one more kid, you know? <laughs> yeah, but that, that's, the, that's the crazy thing in it. You know, it's just kind of like, who's coming up with that? This is going to make the world a better place or... 51% chance this makes the world a better place. And then you're like, but you're going to do something that's really immoral to do that. So I'm probably not going to judge your moral rationality on telling me that that decision or, or, is going to... Or 49% chance immoral. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> but it's like, but even that, like who's building those statistics? You yeah. know, who's building that? And yeah, it's just yeah. like, I want to know the moral framework of that person that's creating that. Um, and unfortunately, we just don't do that as a society. You know, I mean, you can go all the way back to... You know, if you look at Aristotle and politics and, and uh, like, this is not a philosophy podcast and, and I don't know. Apparently enough, it is today. <laughs> and I don't know enough about philosophy to be talking on these topics, to be honest. But it's like the uh, the parts of it that I do know, um, like I'm an, I'm an avid uh, amateur of, you know, philosophy, but I'm, I'm certainly not sort of, um, you know, at you know educational level of it let's put it that way or certainly not to be educating others on it you know and here more, you are and here i am doing it but <laughs> um for the limit amounts that i know it's kind of like aristotle when he, he comes up with democracy um and somewhere that he he gets it gets proposed to him as i understand it of the electoral system you know somebody else comes up with this electoral system and you know one quote that i remember was that you cannot govern people within a framework that they did not invent themselves because that framework would be open to manipulation. That's the electoral framework, right? So like while democracy might have started off as something really beautiful, you know, giving power to the poor, like unless 
those people are in control of the framework that implements that, then it's just going to be manipulated. And that's exactly what we have right now. Um, so then you're like, well, how do you really do this? How do you really give people a free choice in this? Because the electoral system is obviously bullshit. And With, that, without creating mobs. W- without creating mobs. and But without creating just like complete interstitial... In, uh, yeah, you know, it's t- both problems. I mean, there's the, it's the twin problem. One is corruption and the other is mobs. And we don't want either of those things. We want it to be an actual democracy. Because if you have, you know... Let's say 100 cowboys, I think is the anecdote I heard, 100 cowboys and 51% of the cowboys, 51 cowboys want to lynch somebody. Does that mean it's okay? No, you got to have something above them that says, no, we have a rule of law. And, and who defines that rule of law? Well, that can't come from 51 cowboys. It's got to come from above that. You know what I mean? So that's the foundation of why pure democracy is probably not a wise choice as opposed to pure uh, you know, representatives or whatever which where you have consolidation of power and corruption so it's kind of twin problems absolutely so representative democracy i'm all all in in favor of i'm i'm all talking about the the framework for implementing it you know um so there was um what example can i give here let's think about um like in my opinion the greatest um honor that can be bestowed onto any one person is the ability to remove somebody else's civil liberties. So if I was to say to you, uh, you have the honour of removing all of my civil liberties. So my freedoms, whether I can go outside or not, you know, parents sometimes do this, you know, with children, you know, in terms of they ground them and they remove their, some of their civil liberties, right? And for that, that's like crime and punishment, you know, that's how they're teaching them. And we have that as well, you know, with our legal system, as you just wrote, you know, in terms of order on that. Um, and you think that to me is the biggest single honor that can be bestowed upon anyone or maybe honor responsibility would probably be, you know, a, a, a more apt way of sort of saying it. And so, so I, I can be put in a position where based on my moral imperative, my I don't need a legal framework of this. That's what jury service is. Right. That's actually what magistrates are in the UK. I don't know if you have the same thing in the US, but and, like, yeah, not quite. But yes, close. OK, um, so yeah, they're just people, right, that go up there and they can remove civil liberties from, from people, which is wild. And then in jury service as well, you get a jury of 12 people from just, they're just people, right? You know, they're not trained in law or anything and they get to judge. They get to listen to a bunch of information. No one's judging their framework. You know, no one's judging how they analyze information. Do they even understand critical thinking? That's not true. So in jury selection, they will ask you a bunch of questions, but really... They're both both uh, sides are trying to select for people who will give them a, a either a guilty or not guilty verdict depending on which side you're on. Um, the one time I went into jury duty and um, that I wasn't immediately dismissed because you know the trial you know got mistrialed or whatever. I uh, I was talking to the judge about like all this background, all this crazy stuff in my history and whatever. And uh, they're like, you are like weirdly uniquely qualified to to to, you know, give advice on all kinds of crazy topics, you know, like, so you, I think you can handle this, you know, traffic issue or whatever. And I was sitting there talking to them and the more I was talking to them, like, I know how those systems are built. I know all of the problems with those systems. Like I know how those radar guns work. I I mean, like intimately, like I totally understand how those things work. I know like how they work within vehicles. I know 
the problems with them monitoring certain vehicles as opposed to vehicles behind them and on and on, like all these sub issues and forensically how they actually wrote down this information, how the software works, how they actually got it on paper. Like there's so many pieces of forensics that could have gone wrong between then and the courtroom. And I'm just like, actually, I think I'm uniquely not qualified <laughs> to be here. And, uh, and frankly, I think they were worried about me. They're like, this guy's going to go. We don't know which ways this guy's going to go. And you yeah, could totally swing the entire jury in one direction or another. So they dismiss me. And I think so, you, you hit the key point there. They don't know which way you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And what they're looking for is certainties, yes. right? They're li- literally looking for who can I manipulate? Right? They're looking for that Uber driver that doesn't know that Google's an advertising company. That's what they're looking for because they can go, I can tell them this story and they're going to believe it. And so you, as you know, a sort of uh, somebody that critical thinks and sort of like they're not sure what you're going to do or you can swing it one way or another, you're a wild card. They don't want you involved in that, so they push you out. So it's not that when they're selecting for jury service, they're selecting people based on these people know how to critical think, right? These people yeah. are rational thinkers. Correct. It's the opposite. It's the absolute opposite, right? They're going, these people I can manipulate, right? It's the same way as, you know, magicians will select their audience people, you know, when they go around. I don't know if we have this uh, British uh, comedian, Darren Brown, you know, he's a mentalist. I don't know if he's very big over here, but he does a lot of um, hypnosis type things, you know, all these. And he's specifically selecting people for that, right? You know, who's going to go along with this, you know? And he's looking for certain points of doing it. I mean, obviously it's an illusion, but it's still on that same thing. But I think it brings up a, a really good point. And what, what the point that I wanted to make about jury service is how were you selected for that? Like, what, what's the selection? But like, the, uh, how would I have been selected? No, as in like, how did you get, uh, how uh, did you get? I think it was just because I was uh, registered to vote and therefore you're in. And you just randomly got elected. You were yeah. completely randomly yeah. chosen, right? So yeah. the biggest responsibility that can be bestowed on an individual is random. You're just completely randomly selected. And you're like, well, that removes a shit ton of bias, right? In theory, that removes a shit ton of bias because then people are coming there with their own cognitive biases and stuff anyway. And they might just look at that person and go, actually, that person's the wrong color for me or the wrong religion for me or the wrong gender for me. And because of that, I'm going to take out all of the experience I've ever had on my life on that person, even though they're not responsible for it. So... I'm not saying it's without flaws, by the way. I'm not yeah. saying let's just randomly select everyone. But I just think it's funny, that, uh, or I think that it's a, an interesting paradox that the biggest responsibility, if we're agreeing on that, you know, the biggest single responsibility that you can have you know, put on you is your right to remove the civil liberties of somebody else. And you're randomly selected for that. Yet we put politicians in power, you know, that are making these decisions on the half of our entire society based on a framework that the philosophers that built our, you know, the ideologies that govern our sort of society, they even said it was wrong, right? They literally said, well, <laughs> this is... Probably going to be some corruption. There's probably going to be some corruption in this and we just still go along with it. Like, no one's... I don't see very many people, you know, like, protesting in the street, like, to get rid of the electoral system. You know, like I see people protesting for individual policy. Oh, I want this policy or that policy or this should change and that one's corrupt and and I'm all for that. But no one's really saying like, oh, hold on, the mechanism in which we decide politicians, that one's fucked. Like we should really, we should really get rid of that and decide on a new one. And then we should have some sort of like big public independent, you know, like forum of really understanding like what framework do we want to use? Because we seem to be, 
randomly selecting people that can remove civil liberties. So like Texas needs to, you to be a thing, also politics needs you to be a thing. And that is a conformist to one of two parties. And so neither party is going to be comfortable with the idea of going, cool, just do whatever you want. You know, if you, you want to create a new pol- party, you want to create some new politics, you want to completely get rid of, you know, the Senate or Congress or what, they're never, ever, ever, ever going to agree to that. Um, there are too many people who make too much money and it really is a money and power thing. Um, you're just never going to get anyone to say yes to that. But, but when you say you're not going to get anybody to say yes to it, it's like it would benefit a shit ton of people, right? It's like at the yeah, moment, you still got- won't do it because their incentives are all messed up. Um, you know, it, it all kind of trickles down from the very top, obviously, you know, the people who are driving it, who have the most power, the most money and most access and influence, are going to be telling people that this other party who wants to do this thing are, you know, they're terrible and here's what, and everyone has dirt. Everyone everywhere has dirt. And so they'll find something go, Oh, look, it's they actually did this terrible thing like 18 years ago or, Oh, you shouldn't pay attention to them because they voted the wrong way one time on one bill. And, you know, they're obviously, you know, bad people for whatever X, Y, Z reasons. You're never going to get the groundswell from the American public, I, I just don't think ever. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I mean, I'd love to say there'd be an independent party, you know, the Green Party, or somebody in the middle, or you know, libertarians or something, and right in the middle. I think they will never ever reach probably more than five to ten percent of the population of votes. And, and you sort of got to be asking, like, is that designed? You yeah, know? of course it is. And do people want that? And when well, you, the powerful people want it. And this is the thing, right? So you're not taught that in school. So, so why, <laughs> why are you not taught? You know, why are people not talking about the wealth of nations and Adam Smith? You know, like why are you not teaching that, or were you not teaching that to children? That like, hey, the reality of what happened is all of the people that they, they literally called themselves the masters of mankind. You know, like they all just got together and. Again, I'm going to totally just like ad lib sort of this, but they got together and said, we've got all of the stuff. And eventually the people that don't have the stuff are going to gather around and try and steal our stuff. And they said, we should probably work out some sort of system that gives them the perception of um, equality without actually offering that equality. And then they built all of these frames. Equality of of opportunity. So... But that's the thing. It's, it's like, it's not a quality of opportunity, right? Because if you start with all the stuff and then you're designing the rules in which you're going to be fair, it's like in the UK, you've got this, this really famous story that I love about um, the Duke of Westminster. Like a lot of British people don't even understand the peerage system. You know, they go and I saw like the royal family, they drove around London in a golden cart, like a golden chariot. Like it it was, I had to actually look at it because my brain, again, like when I look at the sun, like I can't really understand <laughs> this giant ball of fire. Like I was watching it on TV that there was a golden chariot that was riding around the centre of London in the middle of one of the biggest cost of living crises that we've ever had. And the people weren't in the street, like trying to attack them and steal the gold. They were clapping and cheering hundreds of thousands of them, you know, and they were having parties with money that they don't have because their mortgages have just gone up and like the economy is crashing and was, but they were cheering them on. And I was thinking like, what's happening here? Like, 
am I am I the crazy one? Like, because well, I think you are crazy because you could get on board and make a ton of money uh, just clapping. You know what I mean? Like as long as you're clapping, you're gonna go on the upswing somehow, or at least that's the perception. That's the promise. You know, that's people. That's the check that they're. That will definitely not clear. It'll it'll bounce, but. But it's a check nonetheless, you know what I mean? And so they're going to give it to you like, you know, we're going to offer change. We're going to offer more of this and less of this and more opportunity. And we're going to get rid of the people who you think are stealing your jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but they don't do that. The royal family don't do anything, right? They just Well, not the royal family. No, but. Yeah. So they yes. just, their policy is just don't say anything. And hopefully people sort of like weird sort of cognitive bias and whatever they're holding on to of like you know the old empire or something you know that keeps them going true, true. the royal family is a bit of a different beast but only kind of i mean they they certainly could speak out they could have a stance that says hey maybe we should fix the the growing um the growing underclass it's growing at a pretty sizable clip um, you know, why don't we come up with some suggestions here? Or, you know, like we won't necessarily, you know, suggest policy, but we will facilitate conversations. I mean, there's ways for them to be neutral and still be useful. And, and how's that worked out? Because Harry did that, right? So like, fair play to him. Like, I mean, I'm a, a total anti-royalist and completely against the royal family in every single facet. Okay. Um, but Harry actually did that, right? You know, so he sort of like, um, you know, he resigned from his position. I mean, I think there was a bit more nuance to the story and stuff of that, you know, but effectively he left his role of, of doing that, right? And, you know, he spoke out against that and sort of said, and I can imagine like, you know, when he, he's talked about mental health conditions and he's talked about kind of what that did for his, you know, his, his just the way that he lived his life and kind of like, I, I mean, when your mum or when your grandma is on money, you know that, like, can you imagine that? Like, a, a picture of his grandma was literally on pieces of paper, and then imagine someone saying to him, "Like, do you understand the value of money, or like how how much is bread and milk?" And he was like, "They hand over pictures of my grandma, you know, on bits yeah. of paper." Like, that's the reality of it, right? So it's just like when he walked into a room, people bowed, you know, and it's just like his, his grandma and. You know, his dad rides around the central London in the middle of a cost of, like, living crisis in a golden chariot. And they live in a giant house in the middle of central London that's surrounded by armed guards and wire, like, barbed wire fences, like big giant fences, you know, to keep all the scum out, you know, to make sure they don't get in. And that was his upbringing. That was his life, right? And you can understand how, like, you know, like, I mean, he said that he had been quite open with sort of his drug taking and things like that. But like, you have one psychedelic experience and that, that's going to bring a whole new neural pathways to your brain and you're going to start to go, is this right? Like, what? <laughs> am I on this planet? Like, what's what's happening? Is that my grandma on money? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, what a wild thing. But it's just like, that's the real, like, when I was saying this, it's like, that's the reality of it. It's just, there's a, you know, the peerage system that's in, in the UK, that like, people don't really understand this of like dukes and dukes, like duchesses and where all this come from. And it's just like, that's, they were given out land because their ancestors went and killed people, right? That's what happened. There's a- And raped and pillaged. Literally raped and pillaged, colonized, like on top of that. And like, it's just the most horrific things that you can possibly do. There's a, a really like a amazing interview that was given or a quote from the Duke of Westminster, you know, one of the wealthiest people in, you know, in, um, in the UK. And um, again, I'm slightly sort of like paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of somebody said, could you give somebody, could you give, you know, younger people that um, some advice for how they might want to be you? And he literally said, 
be a descendant of William the Conqueror. Like th these people, like it's just we live in this generation now where people are watching these Netflix fantasy things of like Viking movies where people are cutting the heads off the people that live next to them and then they're stealing their treasure and they're gathering up more soldiers and then they're going on to the next land and then they're cutting their heads off and they're stealing their treasure and they're gathering up the, the land. And they forget that that's real. <laughs> that, that shit really <laughs> happened, right? Yeah. And then the only thing that happened after that is somebody in the UK, William the Conqueror, he just killed all of the people, right? So then he gathered all the money and then all they did was they just wrote stuff down on bits of paper that said, by the way, you can't do this anymore. <laughs> we were the last ones. We were the last ones, which is really convenient. You know, it's just like, we now own all of the shit and we've got a few preferences and our preferences are, you can't steal our shit anymore. So if you cut my head off, I've written down on this piece of paper that it just goes to my next in line. So you're never going to get it. So no matter how many people you cut their heads off, you're never getting it. So I, I've heard of modern day versions of this. <clears throat> so what will happen is... Um, these real estate developers are going to these, I wouldn't say third world countries, but certainly not United States, like, you know, nearby uh, South American countries, let's say. And they'll find some piece of coastline or some beautiful vista or something. And they're like, this is amazing. And it's just a bunch of like locals who live there kind of deal, but it's just incredible area. They'll buy up the entire area. They will build the most ridiculous over the top, like, uh, you know, like village or whatever, you know, like massive buildings and, you know, pools and whatever. And then they'll write a law as a writer right on top of it as actually part of the deal with the city. This basically says you're never allowed to do this again. Like they're it. And so they effectively just created a mini monopoly, not, not a monopoly in the traditional sense where you like, no one can ever do this in this country, but they don't need the country. They just need every single beautiful little spot and they'll take them one at a time, slowly over time. And they just keep rinse and repeat. And it's a, it's such a good business model. Um, it's actually become a bit of a problem because they have ended up, I wouldn't say stealing, but effectively stealing all the upside of owning the piece of property right next to it. And so all the people nearby are like, I would like to make a bunch of money on my property, which is now worth like a crazy amount theoretically by virtue of being next to this exclusive whatever. And they can't because they're locked out because of this law, like no more big buildings, no more of this. It can only be these little like favela type houses or whatever. And, you know and I, mean? I think you were right on, on uh, when you said the word stealing and that's literally what it is, right? Kind you of. Know? I mean, you could really go into, you know, depending on like you know, whether whatever your political ideology is. Stealing the are. rights, I would say, of the people nearby. No, it's really stealing it, right? You know, it's just like, we've got to a point now where like the sky is owned, you know, like the sea is owned, you know, like even to a certain degree, like space to a, a certain degree is owned. And you're like, who owns that? Like who's deciding these things? And again, this is going all the way back to like this idea of, you know, the average person on the street doesn't know how one of the, the biggest companies that have ever existed in human history and the most profitable company that is probably one of the most, if not the most influential company on all of society right now, you know, in terms of like Google basically is the internet now, right? It's certainly world, the World Wide Web, right? That, that is Google, right? Wherever you go. People don't even know how it makes money. And you're like, well, this is wild. Like, they don't know how it makes money and they don't care. And then you turn around and go, and then people will say, 
oh, I don't do psychedelics because it's against the law. And then you go, what's a law? Do you understand what a law is? Like, a law was somebody at some point decided something. You know, they had a preference. And that person was in a high enough position within society that when they wrote that preference down on a piece of paper, they got people with guns or swords that if you didn't do their preference, they would stab you or they would shoot you. And that's literally what exists right now, right? So it's like the police... Or, or, or arrest you. Or arrest you or yeah. take away your civil liberties or fine you, or you know. Fine the, you. Yeah. They, would rem- they would take away your freedom or they would like, hurt you like, economically. Mm-hmm. And that's how they enforce laws, right? And you're just like, it's just a preference. Like, pretty, like you think of all of the things now that are legal, that were illegal 10 years ago, and then you think of all the things that are illegal now, and in 10 years' time, they're going to be legal it's just like, that's how stuff changes, but you still have people making decisions based on the law. I always find it really strange. I, I, I still really find this a strange thing because I, I think people think it's the law that's stopping them from doing certain stuff. You know, like I, I once was in a conversation with somebody who I'm not going to mention their name because they're a really beautiful person. And, um, but they were saying to me about like, imagine if it wasn't against the law to rape people. And I was like, I can imagine that world, right? And they were like, well. Well, that was the way it was for millions of years. But I was like, well, do you think there would be a shit ton more rapes? Because do you think that the, the thing that's stopping people raping somebody is that somewhere in a library, there's a book that is written down on a piece of paper that says, you can't rape someone because if you do, you're going to go to prison for between three and seven years. Is that the reason why when you look at someone, you don't rape them? Because there's a book that exists in a library somewhere and that you know what the consequence of that? Mm-hmm. That's not the reason why you don't rape somebody. Like, it's such a mental idea of that the governing laws of order in our society are based on... I, th- I think Or the governing dynamics I think of our that, society are based on laws. So. I think that some percentage of rapists won't rape by virtue of that law. I think some percentage won't rape because they fear direct ramifications of big men coming to their door and just beating the shit out of them. And I think some will just decide they want to be ethical people and the rest will just rape. And that's just how it's going to end up happening. Um, It's really interesting. Some some small amount of people will, will obey a random thing somewhere in some book. So it's because even when you started that, right? Like like cognitive practice, you said some rapists won't rape because right. Because the, I mean, if the person's a rapist, they're a rapist, right? So or just, or, or um, maybe the, the word is wrong in that context, but potential or rapist. So you think that some people, like, you think that the, one of the governing dynamics of uh, uh, a person deciding that they're not going to rape somebody is because they've weighed up the consequence of doing that. They've gone, hold on a minute, I'd really like to rape this person, but I'm going to, I could potentially, if I get caught, lose three to seven years of my life and i know that that's a law and in this moment when i'm feeling like like that i'm not going to do it because of that yes i think there's some small percentage of people who do yes i mean there's like, a, there's enough sociopaths out there who have that exact calculus i mean i would strongly argue against that but i'm open small to, i know i'm not saying yeah, it's tiny, a lot, like yeah. 12 <laughs> 
Well, we definitely should not be laughing about this topic, by the way. I don't think it's 12. We're not laughing. Uh, Obviously, we're not laughing at rate. That's horrific. I would say I would say 12 percent might be a number. I mean, that's that's no way in the world. What there's like eight billion people in the the world. So let's no, no of rapists. Oh, of 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 potential people who would uh, commit a crime. Yeah, I, I think that it's just. There's this thing of like even like human rights and like and I know that I'm gonna like I'm gonna keep talking about philosophy and I really I really don't feel qualified to do this but like you know one of my favorite philosophers Simone Weil is just like an incredible human being and it's just like I implore anyone that if they don't let me let me give you another example let me give you another example that might might uh, change your opinion okay, on this so I've done this uh, this anecdote many times with many very senior security people. Um, and I'll, I'll just kind of paraphrase it. So let's say we were at this Mexican restaurant as the first time I came up with it. And, uh, people were talking about, you know, people, you know, whether you should worry about insider or, you know, whether you should worry about the external threat or whatever. I'm like, okay, imagine you have a briefcase and this briefcase is filled with $5 million and it, and it's, and everyone in the restaurant, every single person in the restaurant can tell that there's $5 million in this thing. And we say it out loud. There's $5 million. This is not a drill. This is a real $5 million. And then we have our goodbyes and we forget it. If you believe that this group of people felt that they could get away with it, that's the big caveat, how many people do you think would steal it? And there are, the numbers varied. Some people said as low as 30. Some people said more than 50, maybe even 60%. It's the highest I've heard. I'm like, okay. Now, if you go inside of a company and you have billions of dollars associated with, you know, your accounts or whatever, and you believe that somewhere between 30 and 60% of the population will steal money if they think they can get away with it, you're really talking about the, the detection mechanisms to get that number down to zero and or the penalties if you catch them. And so that's the second part. That's the, I would say, 12%. I think that's probably close to the right number, actually. I think the real number is hard to calculate, but I do think people weigh up the ramifications of being caught. And they're like, oof, I don't... I mean, I, under normal circumstances, if this were just a fantasy world, no problem, I could go ahead and do it. If this is a video game, I probably would click the do the bad thing button. But it's not a video game, and I don't want three to five years of my life being tortured you know what I mean? So I think we're talking about two totally separate things. Okay. Here, and I think there's a, there's a really big distinction in terms of what you said there. Like, okay. Because money is just bits of paper with pictures on it. And those bits of paper, those bits of paper with pictures on it, you can trade it because that's the moral, that's the society that we built. Right. Um, and we turned around and said that, you know, if you've got these bits of paper, you can trade it for a much better life. And they've seen people doing it. And that's absurd. Right? There's an absurdity in that. You're not trading your time. You're not trading your values. You're trading bits of paper. That's different from an actual person that's involved. So, I'll, like, I'll ask a sort of a similar question or like phrase slightly differently. But a guy, a pimp, a guy that is forcing a, a woman into prostitution. I think when we ask lots of people that question, almost everyone is going to say that's that's wrong, right? I, I would say. I would say it's going to be way less than 12% of people that are openly going to agree with that, right? It's going to be... Yes, although prostitution is extremely prevalent. 
Yeah, but I'm saying like uh, uh, someone that's so being I, forced into doing it by a guy that's different oh, okay, from like okay. somebody that's yeah, yeah, yeah. saying like sex workers and free choice and we can go down a whole total rabbit hole with that because I would argue that they're not having free choice in a you know in a, in a moral society but let, let's just put, okay. like, put, a, put right. a pin in that you know and let's just say like someone that's being forced into doing it right I would say like almost everyone in the, is going to disagree they're going to say that's wrong right? that shouldn't happen now is the reason why they're saying that shouldn't happen is because that woman has a human right to decide what she wants to do for a living, right? Because there's a law that exists somewhere, right? There's a human right or there's a law that prostitution is illegal. Is that the reason why they're saying that's wrong? They're not. They're saying that's wrong on a different level, right? They're saying that's wrong on some sort of consciousness level where we just know that's not... I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, Whoa. no, I'm not, I'm not I'm really not sure that's true. Uh, it, well, it, it's a cultural thing also. I mean, if you go to Amsterdam, for instance, are you going to, are you going to get the same numbers? No, but this is different. I'm saying someone is being forced into doing it rather than doing it from their you, own choice. Oh, uh, okay. All right. You did, and, and you did carve said, out. Yeah. So we put that a pin in that. So uh, let's, get, let's okay. go back to that at some point, because I know what you're going to do. You're going to argue the deterministic versus free will. Well, are they actually doing that yeah, based on okay. their own free choice? But okay. let's go back to that. Okay. All right. All right. So <laughs> if you, if you exclude anybody who um, outwardly volunteers that they're doing it intentionally, I think the problem with doing that is you actually exclude the majority of people who are in sex work that are actually being trafficked and just don't understand that that's what's happening. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's a minor carve out. I think you're basically carving out the cohort I'm talking about. You're just like, nope, they don't, I don't, they don't count except for, I had somebody on the podcast, um, a couple of guys, um, um, I'm spacing on uh, Penn Parish and uh, Joe Scaramucci and they were talking about this exact issue. And a lot of women who get in sex work, this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but a lot of women who get in sex work- um, It's not a are, bit of a rabbit hole, uh, by the uh, way. This uh, is uh, like, we should definitely not be two white men drinking whiskey <laughs> discussing these topics right now. Uh, no, I, I, like. I, think, I, think it's, I think it's well within, uh, within scope. But, but I think that the problem is a huge chunk of them are basically seduced is kind of a weird way to phrase it, but effectively- uh, told that the life is going to give them one outcome and they're going to go to parties and it's going to be great and, oh, you're so beautiful and, and they're, they're groomed into that position. It's not, it's not uh, quite like the movies make it out where they're like, you know, chained up in a basement or something. I mean, I'm sure that does happen to some extent, but those are, that's actually the minority. Majority is um, people who are just, you know, given another life that they think is more glamorous. So you really do have to get a bigger, you can't carve them out, unfortunately, I think is what I'm getting at. Yeah, so, uh, but on that point, I think it's really important to say that like what you perfectly described there was male gaze, right? And you turned around and said, they think that this life is more glamorous. Where do those thoughts come from? Those thoughts come from the entirety of Hollywood was invented by white men. <laughs> you know, like we literally, we wrote all of the movies, you know, we directed all of the movies, we produced them, we edited them, we owned all of the studios. Chris like, is definitely to blame for all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's literally <laughs> like, you know. It's, hey, it's, hey, be careful there. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a, it's a cycle. I mean, even in Disney, right? You know, like Chris said, you know, he was at Disney for a long time and you look at, Disney shaped an entire narrative, you know, of of you know a whole um, 
you know, generation of people, you know, in terms of this prince and princess and heterosexual sort of relationships and this idea of, you know, the man has got to be the strong one and slay the dragon and, you know, the, the, the woman is the damsel in distress and this sort of side of it. And Hollywood did this and they still do it now, right? You know, and it's... Yeah, that predates Hollywood, though. I mean, those are fairy tales, largely. Yeah, I mean, like we, the, the first known pretext of this is Tristan and Isol. you know? We could go all the way back to sort of Tristan or and Isol. Or Beowulf, or, I mean, there's a lot of versions of this story. Yeah, and, uh, like, um, I, I think... Yeah, my, yeah, all of those sort of things, but it's all of that. Canterbury, man, can, man must, Canterbury Tales. Yeah, man must be man, and you know, woman must mm. be damsel in distress, sort of thing. And now we're we're at this. We've point inherited a lot of greatest great stories. <laughs> it wasn't Disney, <laughs> but then you 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 kind of go like with these male gay society that we're in right now, and a lot of people don't even know where it exists. And you sort of go, where does it stop? Right. So I watched this horrific movie um, called Ad Astra, mm. like with, with Brad Pitt, in, and it was. I honestly couldn't believe that, that this movie was made because it's just the absolute antithesis of male gaze. It's like white man has some problems with his dad and because of that becomes um, a, a really sort of uh, a, a not a very nice guy within his relationship um, and, you know, like really, um, you know, he's not in touch with his emotions, all this sort of stuff. And then he goes to fucking space to like reconnect with his dad or on some bullshit mission or whatever. And he does this for like his whole life. And that guy's Brad Pitt. And he's like, I don't know, like, how is Brad Pitt now? Like, you don't never know with any of this biohacking shit. It's like, he could be, <laughs> he's be about a, 100 years old. He could be 100 years older. He could be like, I mean, he looks like 21, right? So he's like, he still looks like the most beautiful person that the world's invented. It's just like, so Brad Pitt like fucks off the space to like, you know, deal with his childhood trauma and like meet his dad or whatever. And then just like waiting around for him for all of the years that he's there just happens to be this beautiful Liv Tyler that's like half his age and just like the most stunning woman that you've ever met. And she's just like moping around, like, you know, going to Starbucks and doing yoga and stuff, like just desperately waiting for her, like a guy to come back. And I'm just like, that's actually what Hollywood did, right? And it's just like, when was the last time you saw a movie where the leading lady in that movie is double the age or, you know, 20 years or there's a massive age gap, you know, between that and the male love interest in it. And then you look at society and you turn... Well, it, that, that movie is going to be a predatory movie or funny. It's going to be a comedy. I mean, they'll write it, but it'll, it'll be a comedy. And then you look at society and you go, but that happens a lot in society, right? So it generally is like, you know, women tend to be with older guys. And then you go, well, how much of that is true because of male gaze and how much of that is true because of the media that they're seeing and when they're flicking through magazines they're seeing the older guy like buy any beauty magazine now or gq or whatever it is look at the models on those things you know and it's just like look how much try and guess or just google you know like how much or you can use any search engine you want (laughs) 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 are you a bing user (laughs) you know it's just but how much older is that guy than that girl in that thing and now imagine like how weird would it be if it was the opposite way round, you know now imagine a woman that's that guy's age and a guy that's you know the girl's age in that and you're like that just it, it would it would like break the understanding of most people's brain like brains of how society works we, we have we um we have a mutual f- friend uh, friend of a friend um who has a uh a, the woman is dating a younger man or married to a younger man uh, a couple kids and uh she is quite concerned about the public perception associated with her dating down in age. 
And so I think you're absolutely right. There's a pretty big stigma associated with it, despite the fact that, I mean, visually it's no big deal. Like you're not like, what is going on here? It's not like, it's not like he's a child or something, you know, it's like there's a couple of ages, a couple of years different, you know, no big but, deal. But even if you go with that, right. It's not like he's a child or something. Right. And then you think of like Leonardo DiCaprio openly dates, like, you know, like, 22 23 24 year old sort of like models and stuff and they're beautiful absolutely beautiful but people like make jokes about it uh, like you know ricky gervais made like famous jokes about it at you know the the golden globes and stuff and it's like but then he laughs and everyone in the crowd is sort of laughing and, and stuff like that and you're like imagine if it was the other way around you know it's just it wouldn't work the other way around it doesn't work like it's it's not funny like it's a it's a serious thing and but then I guess what I'm saying or like where we're going to, we've massively sort of jumped so many topics and no stuff on, on this, but like to, to bring back to like, that's what, the arsenic show right yeah. there in a nutshell. <laughs> but to bring, I mean, this started of me talking about Adam Smith and sort mm-hmm. of saying actually like the peerage system and all this sort of stuff. And like how all of these people out there are sort of supporting something that they, they don't really even understand. And it's like, Hey, if you actually understood it, you should be fucking burning it down. You know, you should be, protesting in the street you know these people are the living antithesis of everything that is wrong about society but you just haven't learned that okay all right with one caveat uh there's the uh gate analogy that i really really like uh a guy says uh there's this gate here um in this road and it's you know blocking stuff um he's telling this other guy and so i want to get rid of it and the guy is like okay what is it for he's like i don't know he's like then you can't get rid of it and that's, that's, I think, the cautionary tale. It's okay if you want to burn stuff down, but you better know how it works first. And I think that's the big problem. Is a lot, there's a lot writing on getting it wrong. I, I actually genuinely don't think there is now. So, again, like to bring it back to... Any, you don't think there's anything good that's hanging off of it? Absolutely zero. Like, really? And, and there's, I mean, if we're talking about the, the royal family in particular in the UK here and stuff, sure. literally zero. Like, there is... Like any study that's been done to say that the royal family, I mean, the only like the only um, argument I've ever heard sort of put to me about this is that they bring in lots of tourism revenue. And then you look at like who's doing those studies, you know, and like those studies are being paid for either by the government, you know, that has an interest in doing that or by them themselves or some subsidiary of them and stuff. It's just not true. Right. Because. Loads of other countries don't have royal families and they're all, all okay as well. So it's just, it's, a, it's a, a mental argument that like people put in there. Like it's a lot more to do with the disassociation of society and the marginalism, the marginalization of people, right? That, that's how they drive divisions, you know, between them. So it's like, you know, one of the crazy things that people don't understand about racism is that during like slavery, when it, it happened in, in the UK, when people would escape from that. It was often the lower socioeconomic groupings, you know, the working class that helped them escape, you know, that, that, that put them up and like help their struggle. And then you're like, well, how now is there massive amounts of racism? And you're like, what is that? That's poor disenfranchised people and poor disenfranchised people. And there's people above those that have lots of power and money and interest. And they've gone, hold on a minute, if those people all get together because they're all poor and disenfranchised, they might start to create new political ideologies and come and like redistribute all of our wealth and, that and, we've got over and, here. And burn us down. Yeah. And burn us down. Yeah. So they've gone, it's much better to drive division in between, between them. And we'll do this with 
pseudoscience in which they've done throughout history. I mean, you, we go all the way into like the Hamites and the European Egyptians that were there before actual Egyptians. And there's so much bullshit that's been put in there. But like, people believe this. And we now live in a generation where we've got an internet or we've got a World Wide Web that is completely unregulated. The social media are allowed to act with I've, complete impunity. I have, I have a question for you. <clears throat> so the one thing I've heard the royal family is good for is people are like, it's kind of weird that your president, you know, it's a political figure, is the head of the country. And and this is this is coming from a very um, European perspective. Like the nice part about a royal family is you have a you have some diplomat who can go and shake everyone's hand and no one gets mad at. So there's always some sort of level above the politics where people can sort of still hang their hat and say, oh, there's something good about this country. There's some person who's a figurehead above, you know, the super partisan politics right below the surface. And I, I don't necessarily totally agree with that, but I think that's an interesting perspective. What do you, what do you think? I, I think that you described that perfectly in terms of like, they're a symbol. You know, that's what they are. They're, they're just, they're a picture on a stamp. Right. And, like they can be paid for being a symbol, you know, in the same way that like companies get paid to build logos, you know, right. and it's just like, that's what they are. It's like, they're a logo, um, mm-hmm. but they shouldn't be, they certainly shouldn't be getting paid and have the, the privileges. You know, the, when the queen died, she didn't have to reveal how much money she had. That's a real thing, right? They, they literally have like a private law that says the royal family do not have to publicly declare it because inheritance tax, everybody, when they die, they have to declare how much money because it's like a fair thing because of the taxation and stuff. And that doesn't apply to the royal family. And then you're like, why are they? Like, why, why do they not have to declare it? Because if people knew how much money they had, they would go, wait, we pay these fuckers? <laughs> and they've got all that money? Like, this is the most mental thing. Like, but... People don't, they don't just don't know it. And we don't teach people it, you know? Like, we don't teach people that this idea of, like, princes and princesses and Disney has, like, really fucked this up with the whole thing of, like, oh, we'd like now you've got girls, like, young girls growing up, I want to be a princess and I want to be this. And then they look at royals and they look at them as, like, oh, I want to be that. And you're like, their ancestors raped and pillaged people. It's like, that's how they got there. It's horrific, you know? Like, read a book, you know? It's like why aren't we teaching this in in school you know and then while like you know when i we went off to sort of try and do a bit of a summary and bring us back on a te- uh, you know where we were <laughs> earlier on, i was saying like with regards to what we do right and digital technology and data like there's a there's probably a, a fundamental philosophical sort of question about like you know that the, we, we could have a really interesting sort of conversation about determinism versus free will Right, and I would I would love to do it, but we will really burn through time. Are you you're okay doing it? No, no I mean we can go, and it's just like well, we need some more whiskey. I, I, and well, stuff so it. no, the the thing is, I definitely want to talk about mental health, and I don't want to burn too through. My, you know what? Screw it. We'll do this, and then we'll do mental health. Okay? <laughs> yeah, Because yeah. I did. I, I really you have now. some interesting stuff to talk about with mental health, and I think that's worth spending a pretty good chunk of time on. So, out of curiosity, what do you where do you land? Free will or determinism, and why? Well, it's a thing of like what I know versus what I would like to believe. Okay. You know? No. Oh, so you have proof. All right, good. Let's well, I have proof because I've worked at, you know, the biggest advertising company in the world, right? Okay. So it's just like I, I know that they, that they go, this person bought a pair of Nike trainers 
Let's go and find those other people that look exactly like I that. See. And then I they see. go and find other people that look exactly like that. And, you know, we can work out and... You know, a lot of people don't understand this process, but this is literally how, you know, all of the ads that you see sort of work online, you know. So someone buys a pair of Nike trainers and somebody, some strategist somewhere or some data analyst, you know, looks at this and they go, when did that person start thinking about buying that pair of sneakers? How long ago was that? When did the first thought come into their head of, I want to buy a new pair of sneakers? And it's their job to try and work that out. Right? We call this a consideration window. And they go... How long ago? Was it two weeks ago? What's the first bit of evidence? What's the first clue that we've got? What did they Google? What did they watch? Like, when did they, des- when did they decide to buy this? Now, some people might be out there going, oh, but it's impulsive. You know, people do this. And it's like, it's not, right? It's like some of those decisions are, imp- are impulsive. But if they impulsively bought something, I would still argue that that impulse was still based on a whole bunch of data that happened before that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we can see this, like when people buy houses, when people buy cars, when people buy trainers, you know, if you go into any ad agency and they will talk to you about funnels, you know, put people in the top of the funnel and then people will buy at the bottom. And those funnels based on different products have different consideration periods of time. And then during that, we then plot on a graph and we go on this graph. These are all the touch points that we had to interact with that person and then we go, which of those touch points, when I'm saying touch points, this might be like uh, websites that they've read, you know, like um, things they've watched on YouTube, you know, it might be whatever, a whole variety of different things. And then we say, which of those was the most important? Because after that, what did they do after? So they watched that YouTube video and then what did they do? And then we try and score it, right? And this is playing into your world, right? So you're going to be able to tell this a lot better than I can. But basically, we give it a zero and a one. And then we turn around and go, that what bit was really important. That was really important. And then what we do is we call them attribution models. And then we have a massive, massive amount of money. And then we upweight all of these bids. So the reason why you're seeing that ad before your YouTube video is because somebody like me decided that you should see that because I'm bidding more for it than everybody else. And the reason why you see that link at the top or the reason why you see that banner is because somebody has decided that you need to see it because you're a specific set of data that's happened. That's all you are. You're just a specific set of data. And you buy that. And these companies earn billions from it. And they have a massive ROI, a return on the investment of advertising, because people have sat down and they've built deterministic models that decide these people. So I'm saying, I've seen it. I've seen determinism in the way that we describe it right now. You know, a whole series of manipulation that make you do something that you think is a free choice. You know, somebody bought a pair of Nike trainers and they think they actually decided to buy that pair of Nike trainers. And you're like, that just didn't happen. That's just the advertising industry wouldn't exist if you were that impulsive. All right. So it sounds like you're saying you believe in determinism, but you said what you want to believe. So why do you want to believe in free will? Because it's really sad, like, because, it, <laughs> one, sad. it's really sad. <laughs> like, I, I want to believe we can change this. You know? like, I, I want to have hope. You know, I'm a, a rational optimist. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to believe we have hope. And, like, I, I do believe, you know, um, that people have, that the reason why people don't, you know, go and commit certain crimes, particularly when those crimes are harming another individual, you know, that those crimes are not like, you know, when we talked about money versus, you know, you gave the example of stealing money versus 
harming somebody. Mm-hmm. The difference there is that it's pe- it's an inanimate object versus an actual person, right? And somebody might track that money all the way to the top and they go, who's getting hurt? You know? I, I think there is a difference, but it's uh, the population is unfortunately not that much different. It's a pretty similar number and uh, the people are very similar. Yeah, like... If you if you just look at the the population rate of uh, prostitution in the United States, and uh, they've got to have clients, and that's a group of people who are willing to harm somebody else for money. Yeah, but that, that's in a different way, right? So they're not, um, you know, they've maybe through some sort of cognitive bias, they're tricking themselves. Okay, all right, into all right. This. There's all kinds of ways you can talk your way out of it. It's still a very similar population. Though. Yeah, it is. But I'm saying that like it's a it's a bit the same way as you know these people by giving them money, you know, and that person being there they've probably got some sort of cognitive bias of like actually like i'm helping this person you know i'm giving them money you can rationalize it in lots of different ways of course that's very different from like i know this person doesn't want this to happen to them and i'm going to still inflict this on them you know i'm going to murder this person for money you know and and that's a lower percentage of the popular you know massively low low percentage Uh, or I'm going to inflict, you know, some sort of, you know, pain on this person, you know, just just for my gain. It's, again, that's a real small percentage, you know, of people versus people that do things where they're justifying to themselves that there's... Out a- of curiosity, what do you think that population size is as a percentage? If you were to guess. You're going to tell me, so like... you. Like, no, I, I'd, I would guess it's about 5%. Of the people that would... That 5% would- of the population will intentionally harm somebody else for personal gratification in yeah. some way. I think it's, it's lower than 5%. I think it's a lot lower than 5%. I, mm. I would, I would, you know. It, if they could get away with it. Sorry. Let me, let me be clear about that. Yeah. But again, there it's like, how do you quantify that? Because like some no, people I'm just, might. Uh, I'm some, just saying if self-reporting. I think you could get that number as high yeah, as 5%. Yeah, but, it's, it's, but self-reporting is very different from somebody actually doing it. You know, it's like if you're, the amount of people that would, would talk about like, if there was a terrorist attack, this is exactly how I would sort of defend it on a plane. Where and you know all the people that are like, oh, when slavery was on, I would have been there building the Underground Railroad. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. Mm. Like, it's like the actual percentage of people. It's like it's it's almost no one. You know that that sort of does that. Okay. So I, I would think it would be very low. But what I was saying with the the deterministic side, it's like I want to believe that people have free will, but uh, other than like consciousness and spirituality. Like I know there are some things that people just don't do just because they know that's wrong, you know? And, and I don't know where that comes from. And like I, I brought Simone Weil well, into well, it. Some of it is Disney movies, as you said. I mean, it's, it's definitely cultural. But then that's deterministic, right? So you're saying that they're yes. only doing it. Well, I mean, if, if you go to some new, uh, Papua New Guinea tribes, for instance, they will consume other people. You're not going to do that in a steakhouse in New York, but you will do it in Papua New Guinea if you're a part of a cannibalist uh, tribe. That's just part of the thing, and sometimes it happens. And and enough people have done it that approximately 100% of certain tribes have eaten human flesh. So are you saying that it's completely deterministic or completely free will that they are eating humans? Yes, yeah, so I- like I would assume in that case that, that I mean that's that seems like you could make a case that humans are not bound by um by internal guidance. They're bound by society. 
so in that scenario, I would imagine that the majority of people that are doing it now, or, or almost all of them are doing it because people did that before them, right? So in that sense, it's deterministic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so they're influenced by their society. Right. Um, th- I guess the question we'd be going back to is like, did somebody have a free choice at the start of that, right? And that this, uh, and that's kind of where I'm getting to now. It's, it's kind of like, what things do I think are deterministic in terms of decisions that people make each day that I can look at them on an aggregate level, that I can look at big data and I can go, how many of these people do I know fall into that category? You know, how many of them fall into that social economic group? How many of these people do I know are going to make this decision versus that decision? They're going to vote for that party versus that party. And what Cambridge Analytica style you know, deterministic things can I, I do. This is literally the way that the majority of the world works, right? So it's like the entire consumerism industry, the advertising industry, the marketing industry, political strategist, like the entire political thing. It's all worked on determinism. Like all of this is deterministic, right? That's literally why you have polls on TV, right? You know, the, where's Jupiter going to be? What's the weather going to be? This is all deterministic, right? So, so then I'm sort of going where's the free will right so it's just like <laughs> what are we freely in control of like or uh-huh. what do we freely decide and it's like i said i, I want to believe that it's uh, that i want that it's true mm. and i do believe that like we are freely deciding not to hurt other people like into a to a larger like you know to a massively more majority than the people that decide against that and I don't believe that that is based on the, determin- the deterministic factor of there is a law saying that we shouldn't do that. I think that's our free choice that, that's doing that. Mm. I think you lost me at that last part, but every other part I agree with. Um, I unfortunately know enough about enough things in the universe that I kind of move almost exclusively into the direction of determinism. Oh, wow. Almost exclusively. And there's only a few things that I'm willing to have a comma that maybe, maybe there's some free will there. Maybe. And it's a big comma. And that would be down to the quantum level. And so, yes, maybe, maybe a bit can go this way or this way. Maybe one photon from a high energy particle coming from space can go and hit my brain in exactly the right way and flip me from deciding to mow someone down on the street and not doing it. I mean, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's how it works, but you, that's the level we're talking about. That's the free will where it's, it's almost more like a uh, roll of the dice than it is true cognitive free will. Okay. Well, I feel like we need just a, uh, a philosopher just to be sort of sat in the corner <laughs> of this, you know, just like Cry constant, foul. constantly just be checking on our, our sort of philosophy over here and sort of saying, actually, people had these conversations 300 no, years I, ago. I, you know? I'm, I'm more of the super determinism, where if you were able to properly map the, you know, the pool balls of the universe, you know, God starts or whatever starts the universe, clicks the pool balls, they go in whatever direction they go. I think that you, that could be clicked a billion times in a row and it's always going to go the exact same way. Now, what might be different is in the beginning of the universe or whatever, um, maybe some spiritual cognition or whatever allows us to click it in a slightly different way and now we mow down the kid or don't mow down the kid or maybe there's spirituality above it in a, a seventh, eighth dimensional plane because that's kind of how these things work in dimensions. Um 
that might have some say in a fourth dimensional universe, which is where we live and say, nope, uh, I, w- I want you to not mow down the kid because I am an ethical, you know, spiritual being. And it's more like a, a book where you can flip the pages or actually it's probably more like a web page where you can edit the web page and say, nope, I'm not going to do that. Um, and maybe that's the quantum. Maybe that's where the quantum gets in and says, okay, no, you're actually that, that high energy particle is going to hit you right at the, right that perfect second or you're going to, you know, going to have a Hawking particle decay and all of a sudden your neuron is going to go this way or this way. And sure, maybe that's possible. But if you, if you look at everything in the natural universe, everything has correlation and causation, everything. You can't point to some, anything other than human cognition. And the only reason I believe that's true is because we just don't know very much about the human brain yet. We're still working on it. But if you look at ChatGPT, which is a weird hybrid kind of variant of what a brain might kind of sort of look like, kind of-ish, purely deterministic. Purely deterministic. And the funny thing is all the scientists working on it are like, we don't know how it works like this. We don't know how it came up with this. Well, that's because you don't know the role of each individual dice. And that's not because it's not possible to know. It's because you haven't instrumented it to give you exactly all this information and be hugely expensive to do this like hugely expensive if i wanted to know the role of the dice to get every single answer out of every single thing that came out of ChatGPT and why it chose this word versus this word like it would be computationally like off the charts it would be there'd be no way to store this amount of data so they just don't do it but that doesn't mean it's not deterministic it's like very very deterministic i think that's what we're talking about yeah, so I guess it, to, to go on the free will thing, what you've effectively got to prove here is randomness. Yeah. You've got to prove that there's enough randomness that's out there that it can't be computed, right? So you could, I mean, we could go to living organisms, right? As in, like, we have no idea. Like, so the Big Bang theory and any theory that I've ever heard sort of is just as absurd as each other, right? So I think that the Big Bang theory is just as absurd as, you know, religion and, a, you know, a, guy living in the sky sort of thing right we have no idea we have no idea but the deterministic sort of i guess argument to that is we just don't have enough data right and at some point we will work this out or not or or not or maybe this is too much but then it's just like to prove the randomness of it it's like on it's my understanding that on any given day a human being makes about thirty thousand choices obviously there's no way that we can rationally make you know using critical thinking in terms of thirty thousand choices every single day but it's just it could be anything you know am i going to pick up this cup right now what time do i wake up like all of these different things so there's a certain order that you're making those thirty thousand choices in you know so like which is different to to other people um you know you decide to get up and when you sleep you sleep in a certain way and you might drink you know a drink as soon as you wake up and brush your teeth and but you make roughly thirty thousand choices every single day so now by the time you've lived like three days, that's already like a number that we don't know because if there's going to be nobody else that's lived those exact 30,000 choices in that exact same order for that exact three-day period. And then by the time you keep growing up and blah, 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 and you add more days and stuff like that, they're numbers that we cannot compute, right? There are lots and lots of different choices, which is why seemingly you get... Seems random. It's So this is the thing, like, it, but then you could always have that argument, right? It's just like, because if we quantify it still as dots on a graph you know and which is the way that we're looking at it which is kind of okay if that's thirty thousand choices then there will just be dots on a graph and like if we keep plotting it and plotting it 
and eventually you'll be able to build some sort of graph that will have a certain telemetry on that and then we can project that out going forward and we can go these people are going to look exactly like that to a certain degree I, I get the sort of the deterministic sort of and I'm not arguing either way here. I'm not wed to a side. Yeah, me neither. And like, and I am a true agnostic. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just, but I'm, I'm like that with everything, right? It's just like, it's just, it's all random. Like, it's all chaos. And it's just like, we're the silly people that try to find answers in that. And that's, you know, mainly based on our education system that we have. You know, it teaches people what is right and what is wrong, right? And rather than teaching people the mechanisms to decide for themselves what is right and wrong. So we grow up in this system of, there's answers to everything because that's what we're taught. You know, we're not taught when we go to school, like, hey, by the way, like there's fucking no answers to a lot of the important <laughs> questions that are out there. Like we have <laughs> no idea why like someone's going to fall in love with you. Like, a deterministic argument is someone could turn around and say, there's these 15 things that will help, you know, like, you know, if you're smart and you're good looking, you go to the gym a lot and you earn a bunch of money. So these things will help. But ultimately, that's, we know that's not true because there's a whole bunch of other yeah, examples. Yeah, but you, but you also instinctively, like even Hollywood can't write this right. You rewind the tape and you play the same tape over and over again. They're not going to choose a different person the next time. They're going to choose you over and over again because every single sequence of events is identical. Like even Hollywood can't say, oh, there's such a significant change in the sequence of events that they'll choose a completely different partner unless they you know, butterfly effect, they went into the environment and, you know, spilled some coffee or something. Okay, fine. That's no longer deterministic, though. Like, you instinctively know that if you were to replay the last 10 minutes, you're going to say the exact same words. Like, you know that that's true. And why is that true? And, uh, like, that sounds like determinism. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... It, it, Let me give you another example. Yeah, this, this is the one I've been playing with a lot of this... So let's say um, you know somebody who's a troubled youth, right? Like they're, they're, they've had a bad life. And you rewind the tape and you're like, well, what, what happened in their life? Well, they had shitty parents. They were abused. Uh, drugs and alcohol in the house. Um, you know, physical abuse by not just them, but also next door neighbors and, you know, bad boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever. And, and um, you're like, yeah, well, that makes sense. Right. You don't blame that person for being kind of a troubled youth. You're like, that was a determinist. They they were determined to turn into this person. That that was the whole setup of their environment was set up to make them fail. So you're not surprised that they fail. In fact, you might be surprised that they come out of it. That might be the surprise, right? Like, oh wow, they just ended up being an amazing person as a result of all this, you know, trauma in their house. So in one sense, we're like completely, this is deterministic universe. We, we know that if you apply this recipe, people are going to turn out badly. However, we're also like super happy and accustomed to the idea of comeback stories. We're like, oh no, but like this, like it's amazing, this horrible circumstance and then they turned out amazing. That's just the randomness of the universe as much as it is anything, right? Like they could have easily stayed exactly as bad as they were. They would have been the statistic and we would have just forgotten about them. It's only by virtue of the weirdness of the randomness of the universe. And I mean random in a uh, colloquial sense, not in the literal sense. Um, that somebody comes out the other side, they're like completely awesome human being. You're like, wow, like that's crazy. 
But if you rewind the, the tape and you ask them, like, what happened? Like, oh, I saw this one video that made me change my outlook on life. That's determinism. Yeah, so I guess it, it, because it, random is free will, right? That's what free will is. Free will is the, in my understanding. Hopefully not. Is, well, Hopefully it's free and not random. No, but it, it's free based on random choices, right? It's kind of like you've got a random set of choices and you have a free choice to choose from all of that randomness. Mm -hmm. And you're freely choosing from that as opposed to there are a, a, a subset of choices here or a, a selection of choices and you're being influenced or manipulated based on your past experience to pick one of those choice to, to pick one of those things as opposed to they're all just that is what free will is but after someone's picked it from those random things i guess at that point it becomes an argument for determinism it's almost like this self-proving thing because it's like okay well at that point we couldn't decide what they were going to choose we got that one wrong but now they've chosen that one it's one extra data point which may, means that the next time we could be a bit closer mm -hmm. to doing it so it's almost like the, the argument continues just over and over and over uh, and over and over again but I mean, and I said, I'm, I'm not wed to either, no, to, me neither. To, to either thing here. Me neither, and nobody's, but, there were a lot smarter people than us for the but, last two and a half thousand years. Uh, but but another version this, of this know. is uh, a criminal. Somebody who's done the terrible thing. We don't look back and say, oh, that was purely random. We don't go like, oh, that was just a, you know, the, the universe got you know, jumbled up. And that's why they just randomly murdered 18 people over like five years. That's not, no, we go like, that has consequences. There is a there is a thing that we need to do now. Uh, we need to decide that this person has, this is not deterministic. This is free will. They've decided to be this kind of person. We need to stop them. So we act weirdly as if it's free will, will even though if you rewind the tape a little bit further, you're like, oh, well, you know, their father was molesting them, et cetera. Like all these terrible things happened right before there. We're not willing to say, okay, that's just determinism. We act as if it's free will. So I think that um, it's really difficult to have this conversation because we act schizophrenically. Half the time we act like everything's free will. Half the time we act as if it's absolutely deterministic. Like it's this is foreshadowed. This is written in the stars or whatever. But maybe that's because, I mean, in, in that example that you gave, like, almost all of that data is actually untrue. So like where you've heard these things of, you know, um, pedophiles, it's because they were molested as children and stuff. That that research has been done and that's just not true. Oh, right? I was so, just throwing but, it out there. So Yeah, so I'm saying there are obviously certain clusters like within things that you can trace certain things and you say these things are correlated but whether it was causality or not we, we don't know you know it's like um, you're day I, was, and, I, was, I was just throwing out an anecdote yeah. not that specific example but, but there's, there's a whole like i i guess in in this thing it's 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 really a difficult you know thing to to have and it's also really difficult coming from the cognitive bias that i have from a big data perspective because you're looking at it but what i know that within you know any average is it hides a range we know that right so it's like whatever you're seeing 70 percent what you're actually you know within that when you look at it all in a graph there's going to be some that's 90 and some that's two percent you know and that sort of there's going to be like all different things that are going to appear in that and what you're seeing in that average is literally that you know the average the median of of, of what you're seeing there and I, I still think that this comes back down to like the way that we're taught of like why do why do we seek this and because 
we have this need of finding an answer. And that's why kind of, I think that... Or hallucinating tapioca pudding. <laughs> that, sort of, that sort of thing of like, you know, political ideologies and like why we side that. And rather than it be okay with, imagining a system that we were taught to say, we don't really know the answer to a lot of this stuff. Like we don't even know whether the choices that you're making right now are determined based on your past experiences. We know that you're the collective sum of all your past experiences. But we have no idea whether you're making a choice right now and that choice is sort of not your fault, you know, or whether that choice is entirely your fault because we have a system that blames you for that choice, right? Yeah. So, so then if we were to turn around and say, actually, that choice that that 13-year-old kid, you know, is making at that point, that's not their fault, you know? That's, that's, then we need a totally different system of, like, of how, like, crime and punishment and how we well, deal with it. that's even more reason why we need to get in front of companies like Google, because if they're driving people's sentiment in one direction or another, if you believe there's any free will in the universe at all, and it's just determinism by virtue of inputs, you know, like what's coming into my eyeballs and my ear, ear holes, uh, then you might say, well, you probably shouldn't be looking at ads for porn because that's probably going to send you down a weird path. Well, you don't want the porn industry to exist at all, yeah. you know, because of what that, yeah. because of what that, that does. But then... Yeah. Who's gonna? Where do you even start to have these conversations? With right people, here, you know. So it's just right <laughs> here, right now, Richard. Come on! But it's just a, it's just such a crazy thing because I, I know that there's obviously you know niches of people in terms of there's amazing philosophers and stuff out there, you know, and people that have studied this, and you know they will obviously be able to talk about this from from one angle, and then you've got you know academics that have studied you know sociology and anthropology and all this sort of side of it and it's just like how do all of these like combine and, and come together and like i think of one example in terms of like social media platforms have this opt-out you know in terms of like they're conduits they're not publishers right and this fucked us psychologically as as people because now what you've got is a lot of people will quote stuff. I include my mum in this, by the way. Okay. You know, she will quote stuff that she's heard, you know, on the internet, you know, on Instagram. But she gives that the, the same degree of um, respect that she would if she read it in a newspaper or if she saw it on a TV. But she doesn't realise that they're governed by different laws, literally governed by different laws, right? So what she read on Instagram or like Facebook are on, they're a platform. They're not a publisher. They, and they hide behind those laws, right? So whatever you read on Instagram or Facebook, or the, it just, they're not responsible for it whatsoever. It's the person that's posted it that's responsible. Whereas if you read it in a newspaper and that's wrong, they're getting fucking sued for that. You know? <laughs> well, and, in the UK they are. Yeah, and they're getting not sued here. for it. But if you see it on the TV and stuff and that's wrong, you know, it's like they're getting sued for that. It's just like you, you can't do that, right? It's a, it's a big thing. So Although there, there has been one case, uh, I think it was Fox News was sued for a very large amount of money. I, I forget the number now, but hundreds of millions or billions. For the, the, the electoral thing, and um, the, the, the ballot company, right? Yeah, I can't remember all the details, but yes, something like that. Yeah. Um, Richard, I hate to do this, but we need to switch. We need to switch content. Uh, we need to switch to... Mental health. We no, have to well, do this. Actually, it's because I, I have to switch. I know that you were going to, because you mentioned it earlier on and stuff. It's all connected. It is, but I want to make sure we cover this because this is super, first of all, it's very, very interesting. Second, it's super important. I think you're actually doing some really interesting research. And third, I think that if we continue to this path, we're never going to get there. And then you'd have to come back and that would be a tragedy. 
Um. <laughs> It'll be a tragedy for me to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just you know, funny. you're not welcome. <laughs> I'm just being funny. Okay, so you decided to go and actually work for the government, which is just blows my mind that you're like, yeah, that's what I want to go do. Can you can you please talk about that a little bit? So yeah, this wasn't one of my best career choices, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, this is after publicist. So yeah, I worked at Google and then I, I went to a, a big job of a publicist, which is, the, 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 I think, the largest media group in the world. Um, and um, you know, I think they're responsible for something like one in every two advertising pounds or one in every three advertising pounds or, or something. Um, and then after that, I kind of quit there again. Sort of, uh, I had this sort of moral schizophrenia thing and... Uh, didn't really know what I was, you know, I thought I should be doing something more with the world than what my, with what my skills were. And then I had this whole, uh, what are my skills, <laughs> you know, and then sort of went down this whole philosophical and psychedelic path to sort of like try and work this out. And then somehow I ended up working for um, the largest government contractor in the, the UK. So they run all of like the, um, the contactless sort of system and um, they have like the, the big education platform they're involved in absolutely everything they're, they're called Capita like a, a big sort of uh, company um, a lot of people don't know exist and they have tons and tons of government contracts and they were setting up this sort of special division um, that was a consultancy division and the whole pitch to me was um, actually it was Headhunter that reached out to me and said I'm not going to tell you the name of this company because you're definitely not going to work there if I tell you it because they get trashed in the paper all the time they do really bad things in terms of they're involved in like the social welfare system and deciding like who gets payments and who doesn't get payments and all of this sort of side of it um tv licensing in the uk which is something that i'm fundamentally against you know how how you can still have a tv license it's 2023 how you can it's a it's a law so if you don't pay your tv license in the uk for like some channels you can get prosecuted you can go to prison you should. You're a bad person. It's the wildest <laughs> thing. It's like the, the wildest sort of like like enforcement of propaganda, you know, in terms of like you have to have these channels. It's and very you strange. Have to, it's so wild. Like it's crazy. Yeah. But like that's a, you know, a, a crazy part of it. And it, they do all this stuff, right? So it was put to me and I was thinking of maybe going into you know actually working for one of the parties but then like i was just like well how do you pick between all these like morally bankrupt people out there um and and then i somehow ended up at this company like long story short and the pitch to me was they have an incredible amount of data and you know what to do with that data and you can do some real good stuff with that data you can work you know with the department of education um one of the first things that i did when i went into that was um brought across like some people from government that were working in government at the time, like incredibly, incredibly smart people that these people were you know, academics from, you know, the you know, one person in particular, you know, really, really smart PhD person from Imperial, you know, was working in a really low paid job or not low based on the medium, but low paid in terms of the private sector, you know, a low paid job sort of in government because you really wanted to make a difference. And she sort of like came in three times her salary, you know, and, and sort of doing this and, um, Anyway, as it turned out, the timing wasn't ideal and we arrived at the pandemic in short. So um, I ended up sort of being in this sort of advisory consultancy position um, in the middle of the pandemic where we were, you know, uh, effectively trying to um, sell data um, in the sort of a a very sort of shortened way of saying it to the the UK government sort of at the time and working with them. And it was at that point where I really realised, it was a really difficult time for me because I realised that 
I guess that the kind of the, the, the veil of Maya was sort of lifted up from my eyes and I thought, well, these people running the country, they're not the smartest people in the room, you know? They're like, they're not even qualified in a lot of cases and like they're there through nepotism and they're making decisions and they're making decisions in their own interest and I obviously knew that it existed but just not on the same scale, you know? I, I didn't really realise that these people genuinely don't know what they're doing you know yeah so this is during the pandemic and you you found out at some point that people were being sent to work during the pandemic right i mean there was so many examples of like some crazy shit that happened in terms of there was um we had a thing in the uk where people were having to self-shield so like if you had an underlying health condition you were forced to basically stay indoors um and one of the things that sort of that came up during this is like, what about these people's mental health? You know, one person, you know, in the room, somebody went, oh, hold on a minute. You know, we have physical health and we have mental health and they sort of work in tandem, both of these things. You know, you can't just look after one and not the other. But I guess the reason why a lot of people focus on physical health is we have more rational frameworks for governing physical health, right? In terms of like food, water, blah, 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 all this sort of thing. It's a lot more difficult for rational frameworks of mental health. Um, and then somebody said we should really monitor these people's mental health um, and at the time I suggested a few different ideas of what we should do of which one of them was an app that we could potentially build um, like peer, peer, peer-to-peer support for these people that were sort of self-shielding um, and I was sort of outvoted on that by very many degrees and they ended up like giving a contract to some sort of like crappy contractor and they built call centres to call these people and ask them how they were doing and of course, <laughs> in a pandemic uh, that was airborne, these call centres all got, you know, it's a famous thing, it's on the news and stuff in the UK, and these call centres got closed down um, because they had COVID outbreaks, right? Um, and <laughs> it was just, but the, there's just one example of, you know, I could go into like the furlough scheme that we had in the UK, which is about, you know, companies being able to kind of basically furlough their staff so they didn't have to pay them. Like these are like, footsie 150 companies you know these are companies that are incredibly profitable and they're taking government loans and and we are going to get to mental health here by the way and i know i, it's a big I, I long, want that i know it's yeah, a big I, long I, tangent and stuff on it, i want just, that but i this, want that for you come on <laughs> the, the, the problem with a lot of this stuff is like it's a long story it is you know and it's just like people don't want the long story they no, I, want, I want the long story they, but they, i also want it before we run out of yeah. time <laughs> they want want the sound bites you know and it's just like people don't want to go no i do want it the the reason why the world looks like this is because it's all this history beforehand you know and it's just they're like no 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 i don't i don't want to believe that just tell me about the last week no and um you got my attention come on so you've got like a a lot of like crazy shit that sort of the decisions that they made that were just the most uh, like just just some really bad stuff and um uh the, the furlough scheme was, you know, these, these massive companies, you had kind of, you know, a football club, a Premier League football club in the UK that took a government loan. You know, they're fucking owned by billionaires. Like, it's, a, it's fantasy league football for billionaires. It's what they do on a Sunday with their mates, you know, if they're drinking buddies. And they're taking loans. And there's a, there's a way in which, like, government, you know, they try and dehumanise language. So this idea of even using the term government uh, as in the government gives that loan. It's not government, it's people. And it's mainly working class and poor people that give that loan because the people that are really earning the money, they've got fucking tax havens and they're not paying any tax anyway. 
So this is people that there's laws that if you don't pay your tax, they forcibly take that tax. Remember, this is what, you know, mm -hmm. forcibly take it. If you with don't, swords. Or uh, yeah, guns. with swords and stuff. And they're, because they've written those laws <laughs> in. They said, we cut everyone's head off a thousand years ago. Yep. And now out of your paycheck, we're going to take money. And then they take that money and then they give it to their mates when they got into power. And that's what happened. And there's loads of crazy shit that, that hasn't come out about the pandemic yet, about contracts being awarded for PPE equipment to you know, companies that were set up and those companies were in some way related to politicians. There's so many of these stories that like, if you find them and you go online and you look for them, they exist, right? Um, and then it got to this point where I was just like, I don't want to do this. And it like, you know, I was developing mental health problems sort of off, off the back of this and was just like, no one's listening to me. Who's making decisions in the best interest for people here? Because it feels like they're making best interest, like decisions in the best interest of companies, and who's making decisions in the best interest of the people? And then what started to happen is a lot of companies out there, every crisis creates an opportunity, you know, and then they started to go, we can just shift a load of our staff and we can blame it on the pandemic. We can just get rid of a load of old dead, dead weight here and stuff. And companies started to do that, including Capita. Um, they did that in a really, really bad way. There was like lots of companies that had tribunals sort of filed against them. And again, if you really look online and stuff about this, I'm really surprised there hasn't been documentaries and stuff that have been made about this. But like that some of the laws got changed in the UK, you know, to protect these companies, you know, a, a bit beforehand. And just the worst form of capitalism, you know, in terms of we have all the power, the workers have fuck all and let's just punish them all. Um, and I saw really, really bad things happening during that time in terms of, you know, the people giving up jobs that they had five years security, you know, and in the UK, they now have this thing that basically until you've been at a job for two years, you have fucking no rights, you know, that you can just get fired immediately, you know, and you don't have to, there's no reason for that given. Um, but once you've been there two years, it's a bit more difficult, you know, you have to go through a proper process and things. And I saw people giving up jobs for, you know, five, six years that they'd been and have all this security, start at this, you know, new company, which at the time was Capita, and then get fired after a week. You know, just like, hey, we made a bad decision. You're on, you're, you're done. There's a month. Suck it up. By the way, you're in the mid middle of a pandemic. Enjoy finding the money to pay your mortgages, you know, during this. And, um, and all of this stuff was happening. And I just saw, like, a lot of my friends and people around me and people's just mental health just deteriorating, just, like, falling off a cliff. Um, and then I tried to do something um, – to, to look what you know one of the things I advised was like looking at the 2008 financial crisis um, and looking at the impact that that had on people's lives there was one study that was done by um, a professor at Yale I forget his name escapes me now but he tried to look at the impact of how many extra lives were lost as a result of the financial crisis and um, it, it was a study that was done by the by the uh, it was commissioned by the EU um, and he come up with a massive figure and he basically said, uh, you know, it, within the sort of white paper that he published at the end of it, um, he said they limited the cause of death to a couple of different areas. And I believe that the reason they did that is because they didn't want to know the true extent of how many people actually died as a result of this. And what I'm saying, there was a really amazing book called A Body Keeps a Score that mm -hmm. was all about this as well. It talks about the impact of stress on the body and how that can age you and how, um, you know, that the... the coping mechanisms of the lower social classes between the higher social classes and how much longer the people the richer people and the poorer people sort of like live um so i kind of really saw a lot of this and it really affected my mental health at the time and i was sort of like how can i help with this you know like this this seems really unfair um and then i started to look at things like 
um, suicide rates that were just absolutely, I mean, actually during the pandemic, they weirdly went down. Um, temporarily. Temporarily went down because people were being locked inside and these people felt, you know, um, they, they didn't feel. Well, they felt like there's probably a purpose, I would assume. Like there's a purpose of locking down and they're with their, you know, spouse for the first time probably in years <laughs> and they probably felt like this is something we're doing together temporarily and then it all fell off a cliff absolutely and the, i mean there's probably a, like a whole variety you know as we say those deterministic data points there's probably tons of them on there you know well i, w- I would say the one data point that i i tracked that i thought was the most interesting was uh, the rates of syphilis uh which should have gone down tremendously because everyone's quarantining but it went up and I think the reason for it is people were, for the very first time in a very long time, quarantining with their significant other. They probably had not had a relationship with a long time since they were with the last girl or whatever. And so we actually saw a massive uptick in new disease in syphilis in particular. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Didn't know that. But yeah, I mean, that makes sense. There was also a massive uprise in um, domestic violence, you know, because people were being locked inside. They didn't have the escape routes of their, you know, their, their partners and things on there. So there was you know, really horrific stuff that, that happened. And again, we could tumble down a whole rabbit hole about, you sure. know, like COVID. So let's not do that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let's just put a pin in that and sort yeah. of, you know, you know, why was the world shut down? All that sort of stuff. But one statistic that just kind of really like rings in my, my head from it is... Um, since the very first reported COVID case in December 2019 to the present day, globally, there's a figure that a lot of people kind of agree on of the amount of lives that were lost as a direct result of COVID. Um, and it's this figure of about 6.7 million. You hear it sort of quite a lot and it seems a bit of a universal type figure that people sort of say now. During that same three and a half year period, there... Um, it's predicted that there was about 28 million people. So that's 6.7 versus 28 million people that lost their life as the result of a mental health condition. Um, that was either direct suicide or associated to that, i.e. some uh, overdose or addiction and stuff that was a direct result of that. 28 million versus 6.7 million. And you think we shut the whole world down because of COVID. and No one's even talking about you know this other side of it you know um mental health conditions um account for about 15 percent of the global burden of disease they get less than 0.5 percent of global healthcare budgets 0.5 they get less than 0.5 yet they account for 15 percent of global burden of disease by the year 2030 depression is on track to be the leading cause of mortality globally no one seems to be talking about that you know it's not like on the news. There's not there's not like like big sort of charities and stuff that are out there and everyone's screaming about depression. I know there's more awareness. I, I get it. There's more awareness. But that awareness is quite simply just not translating into more investment in healthcare budgets. Um, there's a whole variety of factors on this. But it, it's mainly to do, or one of the big reasons of this is mental health conditions disproportionately affect the working class and the lower classes as opposed to the higher classes um, or the higher socioeconomic groups. And that's mainly because the coping mechanisms, they have access to really good coping mechanisms. They have access to doctors. You know, if they want to see a therapist, they just fucking go and see a therapist. You know, if they want, if they need a break from their job, they just go on holiday. You know, if like, if they're getting sad syndrome because they have done enough sunshine, they just book a flight and they go to the Bahamas. Right. 
And then people talk about, yeah, well, look at like what happens with the welfare system and these people get like they get their welfare and then they spend it on drugs and alcohol. It's like, yeah, because those people are working in factories. Like, the reason why when you go to a supermarket and you, you can buy, get food and it's on the shelves is because some fact some people went to a factory and they stacked it or some people stacked it on shelves and some people like did all of that. Like in that whole distribution system, there's a whole bunch of working class and lower class people that make all of that that make all of that exist. And, you know, to get all the way back to the sort of Marx, you know, on it, separating the worker from the means of production and stuff, if you have a go, like Simone Weil did, and sort of like work in one of these factories, what you can't do in that factory is think. You know, you need to meet the quota. Look at Amazon and stuff on this, right? It's all about like fast. You have to meet the quota. And if you don't meet the quota, you get fired from it. It's, like, it's really stressful. And these people earn fuck all money and they don't have enough money for food and housing and that we're in this huge cost of living crisis. And then what do they turn to? And they go, what's my COVID mechanism here? And they're like, I'm going to turn to like maybe some recreational drugs and I'm going to turn, yeah. turn to some alcohol, right? And it's, it's understandable on a deterministic so, value. So you went and decided to start interviewing um, psychiatrists, psychologists. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so... Um, I, I kind of saw this and I said I went through my own sort of like, you know, mental health struggles and stuff on, on this. I sort of actually found myself in rehab. Um, but like I, I sort of had like a, a sort of early midlife crisis, sort of like a complete sort of breakdown of just like what was going on. And it was kind of one of these points where, I mean, you, you now have the context of back earlier on in the conversation when I was saying about sometimes we just don't know the answers. And our education system teaches us that there's an answer for everything because that's what you get marked on. And when I started to, you know, look at or get exposed to sort of large scale government type decisions, I really looked and I went, whoa, there's no right answer here. You know, sometimes the answer is like it's, you know, it's it's just wrong and it's slightly less wrong. <laughs> you know, it's just like there's no good answer here. And that to someone that's been brought up in that sort of you know, in that education system of like that idealistic of, oh, there's an answer for everything. It was really difficult Um I guess when you're brought up in a more in a in a different social bracket and you're taught that we're different and we're special, I guess it's much easier to be more sociopathic and have less empathy at that point and just go, oh, well, let's make this decision because it was a fuck. It doesn't affect us anyway. You know, it's like we've currently got a prime minister of the UK and the biggest cost of living crisis that we've had in a long time. It's a fucking billionaire. Like you can you can make it up. You can put it in a movie script, right? And it's just because he's like such a sociopath that he's able to make decisions on the basis of I don't care. They're just statistics to us. So I kind of went like, how can I help? Like you know, what can I do here? Is there any way of taking what I learned within the sort of big data and advertising industry and all of the deterministic stuff that we were talking about and going? Can I help? Like, are people aware of this? You know, what if people were aware of the amount of information that Facebook had on them? What could they do with it? You know, like there's 1,440 minutes in every single day. And I wonder if everyone knows what they do with those 1,440 minutes. I wonder if they looked across the course of a week and they saw what they did with their minutes. I wonder if they would go, fuck, <laughs> I really need to change my life and make better decisions. You know, now imagine that across a month or six months or a year. I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt that if they went, this is your life. It's right there. It's just a series of choices and this is what you're doing. I think people would make better decisions. And I think if people knew the impact that you know, digital technology and social media was having on their lives, I 
think that they might think more about using it. You know? So when you talked to these psychologists and psychiatrists, what did what was their process? So what was really sort of fascinating? You talked to a hundred of them. I talked to like it's probably way more than that now. Okay. You know, like a, right. like a lot, a lot of them. And um, what was sort of fascinating about of it was they all knew the problem. You know, like they they weren't. It wasn't like you had to extract it out of them. You know, it was like they knew the problem. Like, like quite simply, they just don't have enough data in which to make decisions from. It just doesn't exist. Like, there's no X-ray machine that exists for mental health. You know, there's no MRI for mental health. But you uh, you were telling me at one point, <clears throat> it's quite a quite a while back, so I might get the statistic wrong, but something like fifty percent, or or whatever, very very high percentage was misdiagnosed on the first visit. So it, I think the statistic's actually around 70%. Wow. Um, so <laughs> I think it's the, the sort of generally sort of quoted statistic is that... It's worse than roll of the dice. So it's it's a bit different from that because like roll of the dice, of like, yeah, roll of the dice, obviously one in six, like a coin flip, like one in two. But mental health conditions, like part of the problem with it is it's so subjective, even our understanding of it. So you can get really deep on this. They have something called the ICD-11 and the DSM-5 that are frameworks for understanding what are mental health conditions. Um, so now I'm not going to knock those frameworks, right? They've obviously been, there's a lot of studies that have gone into Why? It. Why not? I mean, it seems like they're not doing their job. They're not, but I think that like, I think there's a, there's enough problems outside of those frameworks, even if we give those frameworks the benefit of saying Whatever you classify, you know, whatever your classification of generalized anxiety disorder or depression, whatever that is, let's say that let's just for the benefit of this conversation, let's just say that's true. Now, the real problem is how they understand whether you fall into that bracket or, or like, you know, the more pressing problem is how they understand whether you fall into that bracket. Now, what's currently happening is, um, and again, I'm going to sort of like um, do this in a basic level. There's slightly more nuance to it than this and stuff, but this is roughly it, you know, as people understand, you know, you start feeling shitty or, you know, you start feeling like I've got a problem with my mental health and you've got a couple of choices there, you know, like, well, I mean, you've got quite a lot of choices, but I'm saying if you decide to seek help, you've got, once you've decided on that, you can either go, if you live in a country where there's a national healthcare service or you've got some sort of insurance, you can go to some sort of doctor and you can say, this is how I'm feeling and they will refer you on to a specialist. Um, or you can just pay for it privately and you can just go and find a specialist. Now, the first point of being is that mental health conditions are very specialised. You know, there's lots of, there's a range of them, you know, in terms of like, depression is very different to trauma. Um, in terms of anxiety to OCD, you know, to sociopath, there's lots of different ones, of and there's specialists in each of those areas. So if you recognize you have a problem, but you don't know what your problem is, you sort of just have to pick one, right? So then you go to one, and then you sit down. And then what happens, like, think about it, right? You know, so you've seen it in movies, you know, you've seen it in TV programs and stuff, and you sit down, psychiatrist, or, like, sits there with you, and then they ask you a bunch of questions. And you then answer those questions. And at the end of that what happens mostly is they sign off some SSRIs, antidepressants. Yes. Um, and they sign these off and they go, take these and you're going to feel a shit ton better, right? Yes. So before we go too much further, a huge amount of the people working on the DSM-5 as part of the DSM-5 committee are directly tied to pharma. So that makes a lot of sense why they suddenly would find a reason to give you some SSRIs. A hundred percent, right? So we've seen this before. Uh, well, we've seen this not before we've seen it now the Sackler family 
and the opti- oxycoton crisis you know i think there's a statistic that that something like 96 percent of heroin addicts start with an addiction to a prescription medication right no one wants to be- so, so I, I pulled up the stat 69 percent of the dsm5 task force members have ties to pharma so that's pretty damning right there like if you're trying to say is there a holistic way to make this person better that doesn't involve very serious psychoactive psycho, uh, drugs maybe you don't look at dsm5 and so i mean i was even for the benefit of this saying that like let's just imagine that dsm5 yeah, is let's right, imagine is, let's imagine it's right <laughs> There's still so many problems I don't, I don't think that's from good, there. I don't think that's a good assumption, but, but all right, like, let's go ahead. The other side of it is saying that, like, I mean, I wasn't, I, I know it's wrong, but I was just saying, like, there's so many other pressing, like, you know, problems before we get to changing the classification system of it. Like, the reality of it is the entire system is wrong, right? But people don't want to know this, right? People don't want to know the reality of, hey, you're feeling depressed? Cool. It probably just means you're a good person. It probably just means that you've got some level of empathy that you read the news and you've had conversations and you talk to people because we're in the middle of this crazy cost of living crisis. The, there's a statistic that the 80 richest people in the world have the same combined wealth than the poorest 4 billion. Like that's a real, like, these are real things that are happening in the world. And it's just like, that's a depressing thing. You're supposed to feel depressed at that point. Like these people that jump, jump around, oh, I just choose to be positive all the time. It's like, you're choosing to be delusional. That's a mental health condition. You're delusional. So it's just like, you're supposed to have, you have a full emotional spectrum. Sometimes you're going to feel anxious because the fucking world's an anxious place. Like, you know, there's loads of, sometimes you're going to feel depressed. No one wants to tell you that. What they want to tell you is, you should be really happy. If you're not happy and you're not jazz hands all the time, you need some SSRIs. That's just not fucking true. It's like, sometimes you need to cry, cry, you know? Sometimes you need to get angry, get angry, but just try not to hit anyone, you know? Like, don't hurt anyone when you're angry, you know? Go to a boxing class or some shit like that, you know? Hurt them. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, you know, just just like, don't do that, right? Don't hurt people in boxing class. What's happening now is we've got this entire generation of people that are being sold these fucking lies of you need to be happy all the time you're seeing these statistics like here's a name that no one knows francis hugan i'm sorry if i pronounce your surname wrong by the way (laughs) Uh, no one knows who that is right she was a whistleblower that worked at facebook i would argue that if you looked at why facebook rolled out all of their metaverse and their conspiracy theory time by the way Um, but like just look at it like look how quickly they did that look at that weird video that mark zuckerberg put online and like why did it all happen so quickly and stuff and then look at what was happening like just in the immediate time just a few days or weeks before that someone called francis hugan come out and she whistled blue and she put a report online about about um uh, instagram and Part of that report said there is a direct correlation between the propensity to self-harm in 11 to 17-year-old girls and the amount of time they're spending on Instagram. We know that people that are spending time on Instagram, it's fucking causing problems. And like people are still on it and no one knows her name anymore. And no one's talking about this. You know, doctors and governments, you know, like we have, you know, people are saying you can't take... Um, psilocybin for the treatment of depression because that is a you know section one or a class one drug it has no therapeutic purposes whatsoever 
ask the psychology industry, right? They know this is a lie. It's been a lie since it was like since the 70s. And like, there's enough evidence on this now, right? So people that are hiding behind this, you know, and sort of saying, oh, well, it's a, you know, it's a law. I think we discussed what a law is earlier on in this sort of program. <laughs> it's just someone's preference, right? So it's like, get to speed with this, first of all. Um, we've, we've now got this sort of generation of people that are being sold these lies, that are being sold this, you should feel happy all the time. You should have an answer for life. And they don't have that. And they don't feel happy all the time because they're anxious and they're depressed and they're turning to self-harm. This is what's happening with young girls now. And it's, they're being taught in schools that there's an answer to everything. There's a right answer to everything. We're teaching you the answer. And the reality is we don't fucking know. There's not. We don't know how human existence happened. We can't really explain to you in any way that giant planet of fire that's in the sky, you know, that like, we really understand. We can't do that, right? And it's just, there's just a lot of chaos that's out there and it's okay. And what's happened is people have sold us these lies and because they've sold us these lies about being happy and, you know, that, you know, we should be, have this amazing fulfillment in life and that, you know, we should be living these really amazing, happy Kardashian sort of lifestyles and stuff. And it's just like, break the Kardashians' life down, you know? It's just like, they're fucking deeply unhappy people, you know? It's just like, it's madness. But it's a, that's what's happening. And the psychology industry, it's like, it's an entire industry that is wrong. And unfortunately, people are focusing on it, you know? And that, that's, they're saying that's the best answer. Like, Sigmund Freud, you know how much coke that guy did? But it's just <laughs> like, you know, there's lots of reports and stuff on this. Like, the guy wrote a book about cutting women's clitorises off. And people still talk about psychoanalysis. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that like, you know, good people can't have bad ideas and you can't have good ideas and bad ideas, but I'm just saying it needs to be considered within context, right? And that's what the industry is doing right now. And where, where I'm coming at it is a case of saying, from what I learned in my advertising industry, I know that like people are nuanced, but at the same time, people are creatures of habit and you'll make a lot of choices the same. So walk me through what happens. I walk in, I say, Hey doc, uh, I'm feeling bad about X. How does it go from that beginning conversation to the end of that meeting, maybe second, third, fourth meeting where I'm now SSRIs, despite the fact I probably don't need them or I'm told I'm afraid of elevators, even though I don't give a shit about elevators. Like how, how is it, swung so far away from whatever original problem i have like how does that work so it's not necessarily uh, i guess the point I would, uh, i'll explain that but one of the things i'd like to say is that like it's not necessarily that when you take ssris you don't need them because they will make you feel better right but it's in the True. same way as like if you've ever taken mdma like it fucking feels amazing you know it's like you know you take it and like if you just want to feel happy all the time it's just like just take drugs all the time it's like you're telling me that like you know, heroin addicts and people that are like living in the street that are waking to up. To be clear, the Arsenic Show does not advocate taking drugs all the time. <laughs> I'm not saying that, but like, my, my, I was not being specific. I was, I was uh, being slightly facetious there, but like, as effectively, what I was saying is that like, you think that these drug addicts that are in the street, you know, that are living under shelters, that are living, you know, under bridges, and you know, waking up in their own piss and you know, sick and stuff. You think that they're doing that because the drugs that they take aren't fucking wicked, you know? Mm -hmm. The drugs they take are awesome, you know? It's mm -hmm. just like, it's, it feels amazing. The question is like, is that what we want for our life, you know? Do you constantly just want like all of that serotonin like pumping through your body like, and all that dopamine all the time? It's like, no. 
Like, it's just like, if you had that all the time, you never get anything done. Like, it's just like, I, I believe, which is why this free will sort of side of it coming back, like, I believe there's something inside of us that wants to have some sort of greater impact on the world. Like, I believe that like, inherently we want to, we want to make um, the world a better place and we want to sort of serve people. And I think there's something in that. So pumping us full of drugs that either numb our experience or just pump us full of serotonin and dopamine that make us feel better when actually we don't feel better. Uh, I don't think that's a good thing. And when you're going there with a psychologist, like they're having to do a lot in that one moment. So let's run through like the, th- the criteria that they're judging you on at that moment, right? Effectively, they're asking you a bunch of questions. You've probably done these online or you've seen a bunch of them. Like, do you have depression? Like, I mean, fucking Apple just integrated it into the new I- iOS, like a depression questionnaire. Answer these questions. And at the end of it, we'll tell you if you've got depression. And it's just like, how's that helping? Who's it help at that point? Oh, I've just done this questionnaire and it says I'm fucked. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Do you feel better from that? Like, no, <laughs> like, no. like, it's just like, what a mental thing for like, I mean, who made that decision at Apple? You know, what a crazy thing. And, and it's just like, that's what's happening, right? And one, people are not that self-aware. Two, like people, when they're answering those questions and stuff, they've put in an awful lot. Like, think of exams, you know, people get shit wrong. You know, they get nervous when they're answering. They don't really know themselves and stuff. Like imagine saying like, how do you feel right now? You don't know that. No one knows how they feel right now. Like, it's a much easier looking back in time like how like when was the last time you felt angry you know and it's like oh that person pissed me off and it's just like, it's easier to do it like that so a lot of the time like sometimes it's, it's the way that data is captured that is the problem um but like what a, a, a psychiatrist when you sit down with them is roughly doing is they're judging you across a number of different categories so one is they're looking at cognition so cognition is what you think so what you think you feel that's very different from what you feel and there's an important distinction to be made there. Yeah, um, I think this is worth spending just a, a little minute on. One of the things I thought was most interesting that you were talking about is the question they ask, not necessarily in the intake, but the question that they ask afterwards. They basically ask, oh, how are you feeling today? Or, you know, did you have a good day or whatever? Like, what's the problem with that? So it's, it's the point of, right, so let's say you, you're sat with a psychiatrist right now you've got something called environmental deterministic bias. So the very fact that you're sat with that psychiatrist and you're in that room means that you've got a bias. You know, you're now like, oh, I've got a problem because I'm sat with a psychiatrist and this appointment has been in my diary all week and I've travelled here to do this. And now all these different feelings are sort of coming up inside of you. You're remembering all of this bad shit that's happening in your head. And they're not necessarily your real thoughts. You know, there's not the stuff that's happening all the time. It's just because that environment is bringing out all of that shit inside you, right? So that's part of the problem. And then the psychiatrist will often sort of say, like, how are you feeling? And you think about what a strange question is that, you know, and it's just kind of like, how am I feeling in that moment? Yeah, I just got cut off in traffic. I'm pissed. And you're like, <laughs> okay, I'm really pissed off. So now you spend, or like, you know, let's say a psychologist actually would be, better, you know, more like a regular therapist that someone goes to on a day-to-day basis it would be better than saying a psychiatrist, which sort of tends to come at the top. And then, a, a, you know, you'd, you'd have a, a therapist sort of after that. But now you're sat with your therapist and your therapist is getting paid per hour. Right. So let's remember that, right? That your therapist is getting paid for out. They're not getting paid on outcome here. Right. So let's, and I'm not saying that people don't go into therapy for good purposes. I'm just saying the model, your business model is you get paid per hour. Right. So the more that person talks, 
sort of the less you have to do, right? Because like they would argue the more data we're capturing and that we're analyzing that data, but I'll run through like why that's a sort of silly way of doing it. So now you say, right, I'm really pissed off about this. And then they say, tell us what just happened. And then you say, well, this guy just cut me off in traffic, as you just said. And then, you know, and then the therapist is like, well, you know, why did that annoy you? You know, tell me. and then you go through this whole thing and then you get all of this out and you talk about it for 45 minutes and they're going to like interject with like little questions and stuff. And at the end of it, you vent it like a lot. And then you high five your therapist and you go, thanks for that. And then you sort of walk out and 20 minutes later, you then start to be really sad again and you're really depressed and you're like, oh, fucking hell. I don't think it was related to that. <laughs> that guy got me just up wasted in. 45 minutes. And now I just wasted the 45 minutes and I just paid someone $200 for that. And you're like, well, what would I have done ordinarily if that guy didn't, you know, that person, sorry, didn't cut me up in traffic? Like I might have just walked it off or text one of my friends or whatever, or I'd calm down and stuff. All the psychoanalysts out there are going to go, well, actually, it's about why did that make you angry? And we should be dealing with that. There's, again, different branches of therapy have different solutions to this. And like, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways of doing different, not solutions. I want to like take that question back. Different ways of trying to address your problem. Um, not to say that any of them are solutions, but just different ways of trying to address it. Um, what that therapist really should be asking you or what they really should be trying to understand is when was the last time that you felt the way that you felt that prompted you to want to get help in the first place in the first place because that's very different because like someone cuts you up in traffic and you don't immediately go fuck i'm angry i need to see a psychiatrist but something triggered you to go and see a therapist or somebody said you need some help and it was like what's that feeling right and they need to get to that point like what's that feeling so what they're trying to do in that thing is observe a lot of different things about you. They're asking you questions and based on the answers that you give and the things they're observing, they're effectively trying to run through this massive diagnostic framework. We referred to it earlier. And there's all these different things and they're trying to narrow it down and sort of go, what's the answer here? You know, Because each one of those mental health conditions will have a certain amount of certain treatment, recommended treatment attached to it, and then they can give you that. But as we know, the majority of them, they'll just turn around and say, well, you can take SSRI, so that'll make you feel better. And it's like, we know that. We know if you give people drugs, like if you give them serotonin and dopamine, it's like it makes them feel better. It's like, go to any festival. It's like there's a whole bunch of people feeling really happy there. It's just like... Amazingly happy. Amazingly happy, right? And it's just like... So you're, they're in this situation now where they're monitoring you across a number of things. Cognition, like being one of them. So how you, what you think... And that's different from, again, how you feel. It's what you think you feel. The other one is your physiology in terms of what's happening, you know, in terms of like, are you sweating? You know, are your pupils dilating? Are you twitching? Are you nervous? Are you going red? Like what's happening? Um, neurology would be another one, but they obviously they can't get that. You know, that's your you know, your brain activity. Um, but they're, they, they're, they can in small studies. Yeah, in, in small studies, but they're not putting any, you know, EEG on your head and stuff like when you're in, you know, sat in therapy and stuff, sure. are you, right? Um, uh, you would have another side of it, which is your behavior. Um, so you know like what did you do to that day uh, like your step count um, did you leave your house at all yeah how much sleep are you getting you know where are you going for food are you making your own meals what do you do for what do you do for a did job did you spend five hours at the bar how much sunlight are you getting blah, blah blah how much time are you spending in nature versus the city you know how much time are you spending on Instagram blah blah anything to do with your your behavior and then there would probably be a fifth category which is environment 
so external factors in terms of what's going on in the news or what's the weather that could probably be wrapped into behavior um you know and then you've got these sort of four buckets and they're trying to judge all of those which is why the degree of subjectivity of what they're doing and when i spoke to a lot of them they know it you know they're they're like it's really tough you know because they're asking you a question and when they're asking you a question they don't even know if you're telling the truth you don't even know if you're telling the truth. <laughs> you know, like sometimes you're just free flowing and you're just saying shit and you're like, oh, I was sort of half remembering a conversation I had there and I read this book once and I saw this documentary. And, you just, and the weather sucked that one day. Yeah, and the weather sucked that one day and you're piecing stuff together and then you're like, oh, my girlfriend, she's a bitch and it was all her fault. And you're like, oh, it was probably my fault as well. And it was probably a bit to do with that and that. And it's all like, as we say, there's lots of different things here. And they're, they're having to take all that information with their little notepad and pen. And as you're saying it, the answer tends to be, at the end of it, you should take some antidepressants, you know? Um, it's or, almost a foregone conclusion. Or it's like, okay, what else have they got? You should do some meditation. Download Calm. Do some mindfulness. It's like, what else have they... What, have they, what else are have, the tools they have? Yeah, what other tools have they got? And with such limited data, it's like they need more data. But then that's not where they're trained, right? And then you'll have the, the psychoanalysts, you know? That will go, okay, so rather than just need 12 sessions, like a CBT sort of therapist that's teaching you certain behaviours, and CBT is all about when you're feeling this, you know, feeling that you don't want to feel, here's some things that you can do, like some coping mechanisms of that. Psychoanalysts would turn around and say, why do you feel that thing in the first place? So when that event happens, why does that trigger that? And then they'll go, let's spend three years in therapy going through all of these semi-rational frameworks this freudian life thing i'm basically piecing a deterministic graph together of oh well, this is it and all they're trying to do is get you to the point where you go that's an answer remember because what we were talking about earlier when you're in school you're taught there's a right and wrong answer so actually all you're looking for in amongst all of your depression and is you're just looking for an answer for it because that's the thing and then they say something that pieces it together oh your dad did this your mum did this you abused as that and then you're like whoa it all makes sense to me now you know like that's the reason why i feel like this thanks very much and then you go away and then that works for three months and then you go straight back into it because it's not that simple right it's just it's not there's not one answer for this it's not you just it's not because you weren't hugged enough as a, as a four-year-old you know it's just like that that's just not it um and what, um, so what's the solution? What do we what do we do about this? So first off, there isn't a solution. So it's, it's important to recognise that okay. that it's just like there's like we were saying, like with most of the stuff that out, that's out there, there's no right answer. There's some thing, there's some frameworks that we've got that sort of like like you know uh, uh, political ideologies on how to govern societies. There's some that sort of work, and they, but they have massive drawbacks to them, and there's some that work in different ways and stuff, but none of them are right. So don't define yourself by that right thing, because that's what we were taught in school, right? So then what happens is when people have found something that's right, and they go, right, capitalism, this one seems right, they then attach all of their identity to that thing, and then they start to defend it, rather than actually trying to find, you know, rather than going, this works for now, but can we try and work on the flaws in it? Because it's got some flaws and maybe we bring in elements of socialism and this and, and we sort of... Careful com- there, you communist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the communist manifesto actually is a beautiful read, you know? It's like it's more the implementation of the communist manifesto that's the problem. Talking about pe- taking people's power away. Yeah, but... <laughs> but yeah. anyway. Yeah. So um, th- th- this is the, the thing with it. There's no... 
the right answer to this. Um, I'm just saying that what we're trying to do is say there are patterns in people's behaviour and um, we know this because we saw it in the advertising industry or we see it. That's how, the, that's how Google makes all its money, right? It's just like they put you into an audience list. And so what does this actually look like? So how do I leverage this newfound knowledge? So it, that's a good question. Um, so one is, first of all, you have to collect that knowledge. Um, and there's a beautiful thing in neuroscience where like awareness can often be the answer, you know? So just like by you saying... I feel really anxious. You know, if someone was able to give you an answer, you know, like we, we said, of like, like on the days that you sleep less than six hours, you're 50% more likely to feel anxious. In a weird way, that can relieve your anxiety or, or certainly it can relieve a lot of your anxiety because you've got a rational reason for it. You're like, oh, well, I did sleep less than six hours last night. Um, and it's not some sort of, like thing that I don't know it's not because I wasn't hugged enough as a three-year-old or like mistakes that I made in life or things that I did wrong to an ex-girlfriend it's just because I didn't have a good night's sleep you know um like some of it is easy and some of it will be like it is you know is more nuanced than that you know um some of it you will need therapy there is certain things that you'll have to work through obviously I'm not saying it's the answer to, to everything but I'm saying just by giving people more self-awareness is kind of a really big thing uh, like on an individual basis so I'm saying if um, you know, most people that have mental health conditions go without treatment. So I think that's a, an important thing to sort of make. Like most people are just suffering. That's it. They don't have anything, right? And they're trying to figure it out themselves. And a lot of these people are turning to drugs and alcohol. Um, but if we can give them like, hey, here's what you are, you know, like here's your life. Like here's what you did with the last 4,400 minutes. And by the way, here's some statistical analysis on that. And that statistical analysis might just be, Imagine just somebody saying to you, like, hey, on the days that you spend less than three hours outside, you're 50% more likely to feel depressed. Like, we don't know if that's true. But we might be able to know if that's yeah, true, right? right? That sounds like something that is knowable. One other thing you were telling me about this quite a while back, but I think it's useful. <clears throat> if you took one suicidal person and you introduced them to another person who has similar suicide uh, ideology or whatever, um, they are less likely to commit suicide, not more likely. Yeah. So how do you, how do you leverage that knowledge? So again, it's a change in behavior. So, um, you know, people often when they're in the most desperate sort of thing is they internalize that. I meant to say ideation. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And they, they sort of internalize that and they, they start to feel really alone, you know, and they, they start to feel, you know, shame and they don't want to, um, you know, they don't want to reach out for help. You know, that's one of the barriers for, for people reaching out for, for help. Whereas that is one of those things, you know, if you put two people with an eating disorder together, they're actually less likely to continue that eating disorder in a sort of weird, you know, statistical way. Two suicidal people together, they're less likely to commit suicide and stuff in that thing because they feel less alone and it's a change in behaviour. And they can talk about it and they relate to someone. This is how group, group-based psychotherapy, which is one of the most proven forms of therapy, um, that's how this works. So if you think of like the Alcoholics Anonymous programs and where people sit in a circle because they know that those people are their peers. You know, they've all been through this, through this before. Um, I must say here, like as a caveat, like I'm not a trained psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm a researcher. Um, and this is just a, a whole variety of different research and stuff that I've done. And this is what's come out the back of that research. And I'm combining my statistical understanding of how audience um, lists are built within the advertising industry 
And then I'm saying this works because these companies spend billions of pounds. Procter and Gamble spends over four billion dollars every single year on advertising, and they spend that because they know it works. Well, and Google makes over well over a hundred billion dollars a year. Obviously, it works. <laughs> Absolutely, like it people works. People would not put that much money into their systems. They find data points on you. They put it into audience list. They sell you ads. You click on those ads and you buy products off the back of it. They know that works. It's a system. Like every time you've seen an ad on TV or you've heard a jingle or you've seen some sort of celebrity, you know, like wearing a certain bag or a hat or something like that, the, that celebrity is being paid a shit ton of money because that brand is getting more money in return. Because by you seeing that celebrity on there, you're buying that bag. I'm saying, we know this data works in this industry. I'm saying, let's apply this. All I'm saying is let's apply it to the mental health industry. Let's just say the same level of data. Let's just bring that in. And let's, rather than that psychiatrist or that psychologist at the beginning of that session start to ask you a bunch of questions and subjectively be trying to judge it like there's some sort of poker player. Let's just get them to say, what do we know about you? Well, but you also have um, compliance issues. So they say, well, you know, let's say you're a pedophile or something like you shouldn't go near schools or something. And then you look at the map of them going to schools. You're like, uh, what's this whole thing about you hanging out next to a school for like three hours that one day? You're like, oh, you know, or like you're supposed to leave your house. You like, just don't be at home 24 seven for days on end. It's like, oh, I, I, yeah, I left. And you look at the map. You're like, you, you didn't though. You, 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 you're in your house the whole time. Or like, like don't go near bars. It's just, you know, you know, you have a problem, whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, I didn't go to the bar. Well, except for this like five to six hours you were here at this bar this one day and then the next day and then the next day or whatever. Like, you know, there's you spent a lot of time at a bar for not being at a bar at all. Like, Oh yeah, well that was X, Y, Z reasons. You can get to that kind of compliance much, much faster. If you actually have real data as opposed to self-reporting, like, no, I'm good. I didn't go to the school. I didn't, you know, I was outdoors like three days last week or whatever. I, I left my house for sure. I, I definitely didn't go to the bar. I, I don't drink anymore. You're like, but these are provably not true. I'm looking at the map. Like clearly you didn't do what you just said you did. I mean, without that, you, as you said, they have to be poker players. They have to go like, hmm, but did you, you know, did you really do this bad thing? Because you're, you're the kind of person who might say this thing and do this other thing. And it's exactly that. And it, but they're just not taught that, right? The entire psychology industry works on inefficiency. They get paid on inefficiency. They're getting paid per hour. So it's just like if somebody is in therapy for a year, they earn more money, you know? So it's just, it's a weird thing that they're not incentivized for you to get better. There's no incentive. Like, what's the incentive? Like, if if you go to therapy and then they go, oh, like, by the way, can I can can I you share all this data with me? And then you go, yeah. And then they share it all. And then they go, well, look, I'll come back to you. Let me analyze all this data, and I'll come back to you. And then they come back to you, and they go, here's everything that I've learned. Here's a report about you. Like, have a read of it and see what you think. And then someone reads the report, and they go fucking hell, this is great. Like, I'm just like, I didn't realise all this stuff about me. Like, I'm going to try and do this. Thanks a lot, Doc. And then they give him a high five and then they're like, oh, fuck, that was just two hours. Now, I'm not saying that they're doing that, right? I'm not saying that, like, psychologists are going, I don't want my patients to get happy, you know, uh, uh, to, to get better because it's like, I'm going to need more clients. But that's, that's like, it's like, 
that is what the industry is, right? And it just okay. But are you saying that that's not happening? Well, I'm I'm not not saying it's it's happening, mm, okay. but I'm just saying that that's the industry, right? And it's just that's what it's it's not paid on outcomes, right? They're paid per hour, so it's just like think of when you go there, you talk to them, and often like how many fucking answers do they give you, or how many times do they just go, well, I think you'd already know the answer to this question, and you're like, I don't fucking know the answer. So I knew the answer. I wouldn't be in therapy. I'm not spending two hundred dollars an hour like to like. I'm I'm coming here because there's something inside of me that I don't know, and I'm hoping that you've got the answer. And they don't. And this is the lie that has sort of been told. Like they can sort of help on very like small niche sort of cases, but they just don't have enough data. And it's we have the tools to be able to give them this data, but they wouldn't even know how to use it. That's part of the problem. Part of the problem is even if we gave them the data and we said, here's all the data on the person, here's this person's life. And a lot of people like are scared by this, you know, of like, oh, well, I don't want my therapist to, you know, to have all of this thing. Your therapist is trying to fucking help you. It's like you're in therapy because you want help. The people that you don't want to have it is all of the, the corporate companies, the for-profit companies. You don't want them to have it because they're going to sell it for profit. Yeah, I always say there's three groups of people you should definitely never hide anything from. Your therapist, because otherwise you're not going to get better. Your uh, legal staff, otherwise they're going to make terrible legal decisions on your behalf. And your security expert, because otherwise you're just going to end up with absolutely terrible security and you're going to get hacked for sure. Interestingly, you didn't include like your wife or, you know, well, your family. Or I mean, you, you should tell your wife the, the thing that you, she needs to know to know she's beautiful and, and that you love her. And that's the important part. Uh, well, if you if you intentionally lie, that's that's going to end you up in all kinds of catastrophes and all kinds of professions and all kinds of situations. But those in particular, those three are really catastrophic. They will do the op- acts, the total opposite of what you intend. You're like, oh, I don't want to tell my lawyer because I don't think my, my lawyer will look at me right. Well, if your lawyer doesn't know you're actually doing these five of the like, shady businesses, he cannot protect you and you will go to jail. Your psychologist can't help you and you'll die. You'll actually kill yourself. And that's a pretty serious consequence. And in my world, you'll get very badly hacked and... Your information will be all over the internet. So I think these are all the unintended consequences of lying or, or of not necessarily lying in the truly malicious sense, but I think more in the, the sense you're talking about, like I got cut off in traffic. It's like, well, like I'm so mad because I got cut in traffic. You're not lying. That's not a lie. It's true, but it's not the right kind of truth. It's the kind of truth that's leading you down a false impression of this person. And so you need to ask the right questions to get to the real answers. And that's what I think is missing from the DSM-5 and the current status. I'm with the, you know, the DSM-5 and, you know, to, to go on to that, it's a case of the degree of subjectivity within that doesn't need to exist now because there's so much data that's out there. And it's just these companies are collecting it. Like These companies, they know it. That's the thing. They know, like like Spotify can understand from someone's music habits whether they've got depression or not. They're not going to tell you that. You know, they're not going to publicly release it and say, yeah, we can we can we know this. People would be scared as fuck about it. Like Facebook can understand through the way that people are interacting interacting on their platform whether relationships are going to end and marriages are going to end before the people. And then some people start to go, 
why am I being served dating ads right now? Like, I'm, I know people that this has happened, right? They've started to have problems in their relationship and they've started to get dating ads. And you're like, this is what these companies are. They've got, there's no morals in these companies. A company doesn't have any morals because a company doesn't exist. It's just a piece of paper. It's just somebody wrote it down on a piece of paper. And then you've got people that are working inside of them that are incredibly well incentivized with all these cognitive bias. And then they're filled with all of these things of, yeah, but think of all of the good that social media does in the, uh, does in the world. Like suicide rates are spiking. Mm. Mental health conditions are spiking. By the year 2030, depression is going to be the leading cause of mortality in the world. It's like, what's changed in the world? You know, why has this started to happen? And it's like, one of the big fundamental changes that we've had about our society is that social media has happened. Uh, uh, social media has happened into it. And it's like, and like the answer is now really nuanced because it's not to say, like I heard this um, psychiatrist talking about it the other day and they were saying, let's say, um, you know, a teenager is um, self-harming because they're on, you know, because of social media. But the reason why they're self-harming when they're on social media or one of the, the contributing factors might be because they feel left out. They're not as popular. They're not the, the popular sort of person that's on it. So now if you remove them from social media, they become less popular because now they're not on it. So they're alienated even more from it, which actually might perpetuate their um, their sort of condition. You know, yeah, it might Their cause, angst or whatever. It might cause them to self-harm even more. So... Now the answer is so you know it, the it's so deeply ingrained in our society in terms of social media that there's no quick fix answers on this now to certain degrees of it there are so we can use more data and we can improve mental health diagnosis we can do that we can definitely do that like that's unquestionable like we can take da- the same data that social media companies we can take a fraction of the data that they've got and we can analyze that data and we can use that data to help psychiatrists and psychologists make more accurate diagnosis. If they make more accurate diagnosis, that's going to shorten the time frame in which they're analysing people to, to make a diagnosis in the first place. It's going to mean that they can get the right person, the right treatment, because also part of the reason is, or part of the problem at the moment, is the treatment that they're given is on a generalised basis because they don't know anything about you as an individual. They don't know what cohort you belong to. So... They're just saying, hey, why don't you try some yoga? <laughs> you know, why don't you take some SSRIs? Um, as opposed to saying, hey, I know that you are, you belong to this specific cohort of people. And I know that within this specific cohort of people that are, you know, white, middle class men that are into these sort of hobbies, I know that boxing really helps. I know that martial arts really helps. I know definitely don't do yoga. That doesn't help your people <laughs> whatsoever, you know, but it's just like, we can know that from data. Like we can actually see it. Like you can see the change of behavior because I can see people's behavior changing when they're clicking on an ad, you know, or when they're in a funnel, like a buying or a consideration period. So it's like, I can see someone's behavior, like when they're suffering from anxiety or stress or depression, I can, we'll be able to see that, you know, at the moment, it's just, the people that have access to that data, these wall gardens that are these companies, they're not fucking going to give you that data. You know, you think Google and Apple are going to like freely start to give like charities and de- depression and mental health um, charities or 
you know, research into access to their data. No, because they're petrified that those people are going to find correlations in their data and then people are going to close all of their accounts down and their companies are going to go bust. So, of course, they're hiding it behind wall gardens, which is why we were saying earlier on that it's really easy to focus on, on physical health because we've got frameworks in place for that. You can see it, physical health. You know, if I start getting fat or whatever, it's just like, hey, I can see that. You know, we know what's contributing to that. Whereas with mental health, it's really difficult. You can't see it. You know, like you know, when you're just talking to someone, it's it's difficult to sort of spot. You can like in certain nuances, but you can spot it when you look at all their online behavior. Right? Once you've got all their digital data, you can see it. You know, you can just plot it on a graph. You know this. You yes. know, it's just you plot it on a graph. And you can look at it and you go, that person's got depression. So, what's the so what? What are you going to do with this idea? So it's now like you know beyond an idea. It's it's been sort of you know a few years that sort of been you know working on this in terms of the research. We formulated it into. Uh, an understanding of what we'll do with, you know, an understanding of what we'll do with it, like how we can help with it. Um, part of the the problem um, of this has been that, you know, a, a project like this um, and sort of the scale that we want to do it at, like it requires a lot of funding um, to do it. Like it's not a, hey, let's build, you know, give it's us... big data. Yeah, give us 300 grand, let's build Calm, you know, which is essentially let's hire Matthew McConaughey reading your bedtime stories, stick it in an app and charge a £10 a month for it. It's not this, right? We're, we're trying to do the evaluation framework behind it. So the context of it. So you, you have people, oh, I need to walk my 10,000 steps a day. Why? What happens when you don't? What happens if it's 40 minutes before you go to sleep and you've only walked seven and a half thousand? Should you go outside for 40 minutes and walk two and a half thousand steps? How does that make a difference to your next day? No, no idea. It's like, we can do that. And that's what we're focused on is the contextualization of that. So, hey, we'll look at the same data. Actually, we'll be looking at a fraction of the amount of data that you know, Apple, Google and Facebook you know, sort of have on you. But we'll be looking at that data and we'll be analyzing that data, but just giving it back to you. We're not selling it to anybody. We're just giving it back to you. Um, and the sort of model that we have is that it will be free. So it's just like, we'll give it back to you. And all we'll say is like, are you aware of this is actually how you're spending your time? This is how you spend your daily commute. This is how much time you spend in the office. This is how much time you eat out. And also we've noticed these things. You know, this is what you've said about your mood on that sort of side. And hopefully we can start to get to a point where we might be, even be able to predict mood, you know, based on, on this sort of stuff. But, you know, that will come in the future. And if we can do that, then we can say to people like, hey, based on these things, it looks like these things affect your mood here. And like, Here's some advice for you, you know, like maybe it's like having an angel on your shoulder, right? It's you're just taking advice from yourself, but we're just structuring that data in a way that you'll be able to see it. And the way that we make money out of that is by going to you know, national health services, like private, you know, um, medical bodies or you know, uh, big corporations and getting them to pay on your behalf because we're saying, Hey, this is reducing the amount of people that are having mental health conditions, and if it's reducing, or, or, the, or the time necessary to get them better, or the time to get them better, or the time to diagnose them, or they're getting accurate diagnosis in the first place, or, or reduced amount of drugs usage, um, because a lot of those drugs actually <laughs> create new problems. <laughs> and if you think of a company perspective, you know, like how many days, like you know, a massive company, and how many days off staff are having as the result of a mental health condition and obviously the company doesn't want the staff to have days off you know because they're paying them for that and the staff i'm sure that they don't want to feel depressed and anxious and that's just you know i'm sure they choose to go into work if they could rather than like you know be suicidal um so it, it sort of works for everybody and then it's a case of 
you know, in the really binary sense, like we're going to reduce the number of, you know, sick days that the staff are taking as a result of mental health conditions. And because of that, you're going to pay us some money, you know, uh, as a result of that. So, um, like, the, the, the answer is in the data. Um, but it's, you've got this thing of people needing to come round to that idea. And I don't just mean users, you know, I don't just mean like users of saying, hey, okay, you built this, you know, I, I trust you, like it's all done in the, the right way. But I'm also talking about the mental health industry and the professionals themselves coming round to the fact of we can show you data that will give you insights about this person's life. It's up to you to turn around and, and use that data in a better way, you know, and sort of work with us to turn around and say, what of this is really important? I mean, we can tell you it, you know, like from, from building clusters and the clever way that data science works, but we need these people also to start changing the way that they, they look at their approach for it. Well, we are coming up fast on time here. So I'd like to know a little bit about, um, you said you were going to go to L.A., and then you have some other plans after that. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, we can do, yeah. Like, sure. It's just like, I feel like I need some more whiskey, to be honest. Uh. <laughs> like, now we're just going to get onto my hobbies. So, um, no, no. But I think uh, I think this is actually relevant. So, um, so yeah, after here, like, my, my best friend lives in, um, in L.A. He's a, a music producer sort of there. Um, and um, another really close friend of mine Um he actually has uh, the largest Russian language meditation app. Um, it's called Prosta. Um, he's there in LA as well. And then we're going to Burning Man um, sort of on on Sunday. So I've, I kind of um, always wanted to go. It's my birthday coming up in September. So I thought I would kind of treat myself and sort of uh, go there and experience the, the whole... The whole uh, yeah, vibe. so psychedelics are obviously a huge chunk of that culture. Um and I know you talked about it before and offline. We talked about it a little bit. What do you think the role of psychedelics are for therapy or making people um, reconsider otherwise very dangerous alternatives? So I like the fact that you said we're coming up to the end of time and then you just went, psychedelics, well, let's well, do that. I, I, I think, I, the thing is, I think it is relevant. Uh, I know, man. We got the time. All right, we we'll, could do another three hours we're gonna just have on to do psychedelics. Another, we know? could do another three hours. But uh, give us a teaser on what the next three hours are going to look like. Well, I think with the whole psychedelic thing, again, people need to understand where that comes from. Um, and um, I can give like a, a brief sort of history lesson sort of of this, but it's really important to understand it. And, you know, why the context of everything that we spoke about before, like it might not seem like it's linked, but everything's interconnected. Um you know, uh, you talked about quantum and quantum entanglement, you know, and then like how like two particles in different space, you know, in different places and space and stuff can still be connected. Right. And um, I, I had this really like just for people about quantum entanglement, I had this really sort of like crappy sort of explanation of the, uh, an analogy of this earlier on for people that don't know. But I kind of think on a really basic level, it's a little bit like opening up a completely random shoe box and just finding a left shoe in there because you know that somewhere in the world there is the right shoe of that, which means that they are still interconnected even though they're at totally different spaces. And that's a really... That's a terrible, terrible analogy. Terrible analogy of but, uh, but I do, I like it anyway. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's sort of like, for no one that's heard of it, like it's sort of like roughly in the quantum uh, mechanics out sort realm. Of. So first of all, you have to understand like where psychedelics come from and why there is like a class one or a section one drug. And so um, we could talk about 
just one example of this in terms of MDMA, like Dr. Shulikan, um, you know, a Russian um, uh, pharmacologist that sort of invented um, MDMA. It was specifically synthesized for PTSD, for soldiers that were coming back from the Vietnam War. And then it was made a class of one, like a section one drug, no therapeutic purposes whatsoever, even though all of the almost all the trials that had been done with MDMA had said there is benefit in this, you know. Um, we could really go down a rabbit hole and bring up Timothy Leary and the whole sort of psychedelic movement. Timothy Leary was a big sort of proponent of psychedelics and was one of the people in sort of, you know, the, the 60s and sort of 70s that sort of led that movement. He used to be a professor at Harvard. Um, and he was one of the people that when the government tried to sort of, you know, tried to ban this, he was taking it all the way to the Supreme Court, you know, and was saying like, this is absolutely mental, you know, like what you're what you're doing here. And um, you know, there's a whole sort of history of this. I'm going to do a really brief sort of like two or th- like two minutes, two, trying to crush this all into two minutes as like a bit of a teaser and stuff of it. But um, there was um, uh, a lady called Mary Sabina, um, and she, a uh, Mexican lady, uh, she was fr- uh, lived in a small town um, that I forget the name of. Um, I think it's called Santa Maria, but don't quote me on that. It's in Puerto Escondido. Um, and there was a, a part-time pharmacologist from New York that heard about this lady and that was this that had these mystical powers to get people closer to the answers of the universe and connecting to kind of the true meaning of life so he went down I think this was in around 1958 or so but again don't quote me exactly on the the date Um, and he went down to Puerto Escondido and he sought out this lady uh, Mary Sabina and he asked her if she could give him some of these, you know, these magical things. And she did it in this, um, a ceremonial environment. And what she gave him was magic mushrooms. The active ingredient in magic mushrooms is psilocybin. Psilocybin is the drug that's being used right now. Um, trials all around the world, you know, UCL, all across America and stuff. This, at some point, you know, will will be uh, hopefully legalized with purposes of depression. They've had amazing results in this. You can find it online. But this person went and tried tried this and they did it in a, Thing that was very indigenous, very part of the Mexican sort of culture and, you know, in their tradition and culture for, for you know, uh, generations and generations before. And they did this on this kind of um, spiritual sort of path of kind of when they really needed to kind of connect to um, their next mission in life or what's their meaning of it. Um, he had this experience and then he came back and wrote an article about this. Um, this article ended up getting published on the front page of Life magazine. Um, Life magazine was the world's biggest selling magazine at the time. So I think this is 1958. It turned out that that person was the CEO of JP Morgan. Mm. And all of this, like you, this almost sounds too unbelievable to, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, for it to be real, but it's like truth is stranger than fiction. Um, and then because of this article, it then all of these um, people started to descend on this town and this whole thing of the hippie and free love movement that you heard in the 1960s this is basically the inception point of that um it actually as the yin and yang of life goes and like most things in this like there's no right answer to it you know it ends really sad loads of these westerners sort of like descended onto this town mary sabina was sort of giving them psilocybin introducing them to it so she thought it was a good thing to introduce this to western culture the village ended up like burning her house down chasing her out the village it was a really sad thing because they 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 saw it as like giving uh, the western sort of people were basically taking something that was really meaningful as part of their culture and then they basically just recreationally abused it you know they threw festivals and they started to fuck each other in fields and listen to music and stuff and talk about like yeah it's good vibes man and stuff and like that's not what it was about right it was about you know your your true meaning of life you're connecting to nature and this sort of side of it 
Um, out the back of that, you then had lots of studies that were done with regards to psilocybin. Um, um, you had, um, uh, like in terms of LSD, was sort of synthesized off the back of this. You then, um, in other indigenous in other indigenous communities, you had um, peyote, mescaline. Le- Leary was uh, LSD, right? Yeah, Leary was LSD. Um, uh, Hooperman was uh, LSD. Um, so they're all, I mean, Leary was you know, a professor at Harvard and he just sort of got into this because he saw the results that it was having. Uh, there's trials that have been done now with regards to psilocybin. So all of this was basically happening. And what happened with the psychedelic thing is it got very much tied into the anti-war movement of the 1960s because it was like very hippie and free love and this sort of thing. And they were all kind of against the the Vietnam War, right? But they were against any type of war uh, on it. And... Um, and then the, the, the government at the time, in terms of Nixon, Reagan and stuff, they come down really hard on this because those drugs got associated with anti-war and anti-Vietnam. And they saw it as an attack on establishment. So then they were like, okay, we need to shut this down, you know? And um, there was lots of kind of like, there's lo- loads of documentaries that have been made about this and stuff. And there's loads of things. It's not just me sort of ad-libbing and stuff here you can you can really like look into the research of this and why it's really important to kind of just be aware of what's out there you know be aware of what is a law so what they did was they made all these drugs <laughs> they made all these drugs illegal um and that was really an attack on this um on this sort of um the anti-war movement of this um still there was you know underground movements a lot of these you know researchers and professors and really you know senior you know scientists that are in this space they kept those movements alive um you know, and now it's sort of been come back in. But, um, you know, that was why there was a war on drugs that were declared as well. And again, when you look into the politics of, of this and where you were talking about, you know, a lot of the people that sat on the DSM-5, you know, working at pharma companies, when you look at the war on drugs, a lot of the former presidents and stuff, there was an inordinate amount of taxpayer money in the US and in all uh, countries goes towards military equipment. Um, it's really difficult to justify lots of tax money going in to uh, funding innovation within military when you don't have a war. Mm-hmm. So then they needed some sort of war. So the war on drugs, that's an ongoing war. And then obviously you can just keep funding it from there. So, I, I mean, again, we would need five or six hours to go All down right. this rabbit hole. So, <laughs> Look, I will commit to doing this again. <laughs> okay, How yeah. about you? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm down. Yeah, okay. We'll All need right. more whiskey next time. And like, maybe we actually bring some psychedelics in. That might be fun. Uh, you know? We'll have to see about that one. But... Uh, <laughs> I have some ideas. About <laughs> um, we're doing it. We're doing our snakes show from like an ayahuasca ceremony <laughs> or something. <laughs> Oof. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for doing this. How do people get in touch with you and reach out and meet you? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't have any social media, so it's All really right. difficult to do that. Right. Um, Let's give your social security number. Probably because it was my day job. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I guess you kind of like reach out to uh, reach out to, to Robert, and um, if anyone you know has any questions or sort of wants my details, you can sort of vet them and do this on a case by case basis. I'll just get <laughs> routed right to you. All my spam going right to you, <laughs> Richard. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it, and have a good time. Amazing. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll see you when uh, when you get back. Thank you so much. No, uh, it was nice to be here, and thanks yeah. for inviting me. Yeah, thank you, brother. <laughs>